Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Recorded live. Long years ago, in the second age of Middle-earth, the elven smiths of Eregion forged rings of great power. Then the Dark Lord Sauron forged one ring in the fires of Mount Doom in the land of Mordor. This ring he made to rule the others, and their power was bound up with it, so that they could last only so long as it too should last. And from that time, War never ceased between Sauron and the elves. Three rings they hid from him, but the others he gathered into his hands, hoping to make himself master of all things. Welcome then to the Colton Collective Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Dave AC and the Sixth Doctor. Hello, everybody. We're going to try it again. <laughs> yes, we're back, and hopefully without any audio issues. And uh, he may have bottle issues, but he's he's here with us. It's Mr. Dave AC. What do you mean? I've had my head in a book all week. I've been studious, studying, reading. <laughs> all about wine, probably. <laughs> 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 all right, it's time to introduce the other drunk, I mean, the other callers. <laughs> To the show. <laughs> no alcohol. It's Sunday afternoon. Oh, no. We'll wait till Sunday night. All right. Joining us in the room on audio, it's Mr. Dar Skeptical. Hello, sir. Curse you, mainland. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Far too early in the damn morning. Yes, he's he's up out of it. It's Mr. Dark Skeptical. <laughs> also joining us, Hellhound at at hand. It's Mr. Rick Wall. Hello, Rick Wall. Hello, guys. <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> good, good line. Yeah, I was going to say it's going to be one of those shows, but I think it's always <laughs> one of those shows. <laughs> also joining us, it's the Seventh Doctor. Hello. What time is it? I don't know. This this time change, I just don't know. We didn't change time, did we? No. Uh, yes. Uh, you yes, did, I did. Okay. No, I know why, Confused. anyway. <laughs> he didn't, and we did. And yeah. <laughs> yes, it's all very confusing. So how about we just lower the code of silence? Controls, new agent training program, section 3.5, the cone of silence. To activate, simply lower the cone and speak clearly. What? Do not overuse the cone of silence. What? Do not shout in the cone of silence. What? 
In fact, don't even use the comma silence. What? What? It what? never works right. I don't know why we bought it in the first place. The portable cone of silence. What? 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 <laughs> now, that's what we call in the trade not giving your partner enough time to have a queue lined up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Worked good, didn't it? <laughs> All right. Under the cone, where they should be, really. Uh, it's Logan! Yes, yes. Hello, Logan. Also, Cybob is joining us, along with the aptly named guest, 42. Is it the answer or the question? Hmm. Willis Girl is also here, and we're keeping him quiet because he just talks too damn much. Anyway, it's Mr. Randall Thor. All right, there's only one more person doing Jumping Monkey. Go, Jumping Monkey, go! <laughs> I am a rotter today, aren't I, Dave? <laughs> a bit quick, that. <laughs> I see what I did there. Mike's not here to say that. Anyway, it's news time. Darth, you have some news. I do, Star Wars fans, and this is it. We're at the uh, cusp of the very last episode of the season for Series 4 of The Clone Wars. And if you've not been watching, it's really no spoiler to say, because Lucasfilm has been pushing it for the entire year, Darth Maul came back last week, and this week we find out just how much he came back. Good episodes, scary episodes, lots of good fun, uh, largely getting great reviews from Star Wars audiences around the world, because Star Wars, unlike Doctor Who, well, unlike Doctor Who until last year, is pretty much day and date around the world, so... um, Oddly, though, the world premiere of Star Wars is, and you'll like this, Ian, the world uh, premiere for Star Wars The Clone Wars is always in Australia and New Zealand. It's not in America. Well, as a matter of fact, I agree that it should be down there because, obviously, for The Clone Wars, um, Australia was hugely significant. And it's a good tip of the hat to uh, Tamora Morrison, who, of course, is the voice of all the clones. Well, he's not the voice of the clones in the Clone Wars animated series, but he's the template for the voice since he played all the clones in the series. But anyway, it's just it's just great action. The animation level is ridiculous at this point in the Clone Wars series. Some of the stuff that we're seeing, it is really hard to tell that it is animation. Uh, some of the stuff you can still tell it, but it's a very cool, stylized form of animation. It is, without a doubt, the best animated series that has ever been made. It's ridiculous. And now it's really uh, going on all cylinders. I also have a John Barrowman sighting to report in the last couple of weeks. There's a a brand-new sketch comedy that's coming out on uh, Channel 4 in the United Kingdom. It's called The Watson and Oliver Show. It's... um, Kind of a two-woman show in the same vein as uh, French and Saunders. And um, Barrowman was a guest on the premiere episode of that and was there for a good half of the episode. And hilarious. Just a gorgeous performance by him that had me rolling. And not only that, but the the girls in it are funny, the Watson, the Oliver. Um, It's a great show to watch. Almost every sketch is is really good, solid comedy. 
Um, and after this performance, I really want John Behrman to host Saturday Night Live because I think he really does have, you know, we've always known him to be a versatile performer, but there, he's um, he's very funny when he wants to be in the in the sketch format. So if you're a fan of Behrman, watch uh, Watson and Oliver episode one, which in the United Kingdom is probably still on the iPlayer and will almost certainly be uh, rerun on just regular TV as well. You're looking for Channel 4, so watch and Oliver take a look at that. Brilliant. Can, can I just ask right. you about the Clone Wars thing? Um, you said Series yeah. 4 is coming to an end. Is the Series yeah. 5 commissioned and definitely going ahead? Oh, yeah. They're, they are already have... Um, they're basically always a year ahead, so they already pretty much have Series 5 in the can. They're probably working at this point on Series 6. Excellent. Oh, I just need to add that any any mention of Timur Morrison on the show, the uh, the response of "You're not in uh, Guatemala anymore, Doctor Dorpata." And uh, if you don't know what that means, then look up Shortland Street. I thought that was what that was. <laughs> um, I never did hear back from uh, from um, from Mr. Logan's agent, and I was going to ask him that question. Um, did you have a chance to ask you know, him? Uh, Say to to Timur Morrison if he was in uh, Guatemala anymore. <laughs> it's a silly thing. Yes. Uh, anyway, Dave, you have news. Uh, well, just one small piece of news, and that's for Alex Kingston fans. River Song. It's her birthday today. Uh, perhaps the lady won't mind me mentioning because she looks good for it. She's forty nine today, uh, so that makes Ian a toy boy for her. So, um, yep, happy birthday to Alex Kingston. And the other piece of news is really Cultum-oriented uh, rather than, uh, you know, basic news. And that's from the Cultum page that we have on uh, Facebook. Um, you can just put it in the search box if you're on Facebook. And I believe uh, 850 million of us are on that already. So uh, hopefully some of those listening will be able to put in the Cultum Collective Podcast and join our Facebook page. And it's uh, an announcement by Todd uh, Schwarzberg. And it's just been mentioning, and uh, I think I ought to just announce it here, but you can check yourselves, and I'll read it verbatim. Hey Dave, I've been holding on to some Newtonian demonstrators. It's a square wooden rig with those hanging metal balls from the fishing line. Uh, For every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, I over-ordered them for Christmas, uh, so please uh, spread the word. Cultum seems to be the right crowd. Uh, if they want to cover the cost of shipping, that would be awesome, but I really don't need anything from them. I only have five or six available, but anyone interested in send me their address, and I will ship them out. Again, if they want to send me back anything, that would be great, but not necessarily. Please pass it on. So you can just uh, reply to that thread on the uh, Colton page. It's the um, the thread relating to um, an earlier version of this particular episode, I think it was part one. Part one? That was a part one? Wow. Yes. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, I think that's enough of news. Uh, oh, so, one but, other uh, thing, since oh. uh, Dave just mentioned Alex Kingston there, if you want to watch her, uh, of course you can. <laughs> well, I do. You can tonight, of course, in the United <laughs> Kingdom, where she's uh, appearing in Upstairs, Downstairs. Uh, and there's a new episode of that tonight on her birthday. And she's and showing and a complete... She's and, showing a fantastic... And the, oh. She's doing fantastic, yeah. And 
Sherlock fans will also want to know that this particular episode tonight is written by Steve Thompson, who, of course, wrote the the uh, finale for Sherlock this year. And I was going to say she's showing a great acting range because she's playing an oh, archaeologist. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but she's a lesbian archaeologist, so <laughs> there's your difference. <laughs> and what a and since we are, <laughs> since we're mentioning birthdays, it's also John Berman's birthday today. He's forty-five. What? Yes, it is. What? Now, 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 there's a grouping I, I'd enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's lucky I don't have much to say on the show because I think I'm just going to drift off into dreamland for a little while. We should move on before we have to change the rating of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Based on my imagination. Um, all right. Uh, I'm going I'm to leave it up to Andy to say if you want to be part of the hilarity and uh, disgusting thought patterns that are the Cultum Collective, here's how you do it. If you enjoy listening, why not join the collective and participate yourself? We're on TalkShoe. Call ID 54821. Call in on 724-444-7444. This is a US number, area code 724, so do check your calling plan before dialing in. If you have a zip client, you can call in for free on 66.212.134.192. Or you can connect him directly via the shoe phone find if you have TalkShoe Live installed. Looking forward to hearing you. Alrighty, and with that said, picking up from number 70 where we left off last week with some audio issues, it's our list. And I will turn you over to Mr. Dave AC to continue the countdown of the top 100 yes, well, science fiction fantasy books. Right, yeah. Well, we there's your cue. It's done now. You can go. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we've got um, still. Uh, we finished it on seventy-one. Uh, we're up to seventy. I'm going to go in groups of ten. I'm going to disperse that with uh, referring back to my um, illustrated sci-fi encyclopedia by John Clute, where I've been doing dec- different decades. And the next group of I will be reading from those is. Uh, his picks of the classics from the 1980s. But uh, we're going to move up from 70 now. And uh, please jump in if you want to make any comment. And the first one is at number 70. And this one might be one that Ian might want to comment on because it's not just a book, it's also a film. It's The Time Traveller's Wife. Anybody want to comment on that one? I will say that uh, I only recently watched the film. haven't read the book in this particular case, but I actually quite enjoyed it. I was put off watching it earlier because it's uh, billed as a love story, which I suppose in many ways it is, but it's uh, a very sort of uh, timey-wimey sort of a book, uh, written by Audrey Niffenegger. Oh dear, I'm going to get stuck on all these again. Passionate in love, Claire and Henley vow to hold on to each other and their marriage as they struggle through the effects of chrono-displacement disorder, a condition that casts Henry involuntary into the world of time travel. And typically, as it did in Quantum Leap and in uh, timey-wiminess, the actual nature of the illness, uh, chrono-displacement disorder, uh, the actual patient tells the doctor that that's what it is, and, of course, then the doctor coins the phrase from what the patient told them the doctor said they had. 
Timey wimey. There you go. Anybody want to comment on Time Traveller's wife? Because I'm going to buzz fairly quickly through the 70s. I have not, otherwise. Seen, I have not seen the film. Um, sounds a lot like Journeyman, really. It's quite good. It's not heavy science fiction, and it's you know it, it, it's actually um, I, could, I suppose you could call it soft science fiction. It's certainly a, um, I suppose it's a a date film or whatever they call it. You know, where, you know one that a couple can Chip easily flick. go and watch and enjoy it. Chip flick, yeah, yeah. Okay, sixty nine, the Far Seers trilogy, Robin Hobb, Conan the Barbarian series uh, by. Um. Rob- Robert E. Howard. Why? Go on. Go on. I like Howard stuff, but why? Why not the Barsoom stuff instead? Oh, yes. Do you want to, to give us a little bit more information about... You mean, you, you're talking in terms of these being more uh, in the fantasy realm? Yeah. Um, Conan is... Uh, well... Fantasy um, um, even drifts into some horror, I'd say, because he did run into um, um, Cthulhu-like monsters. Um, But um, it's more sword and uh, sword and uh, sandal stuff. Um, Well, not sandal, but um, uh, fantasy than sci-fi even though I like it don't get me wrong I like it and you know I like both Conan and uh, the Barsoom stuff but um, you know when you're talking about sci-fi to me uh, the Barsoom stuff even though it did run into a lot of Conan-ish um, uh, um, situations uh, is a little more sci-fi. Just my prejudice, if you want to call it that. Right, right. And, and as I was saying, it, it was written by uh, the Conan ones were by Robert E. Howard and Mark Schultz. But uh, Mike Randathorst put in text uh, that Robert jo- Jordan wrote quite a few Conan stories in the early eighties, um, and so. Uh, we'll move on. There's quite a few a little uh, grouping together here of this sort of books because uh, the next one is by Terry Brooks, The Sword of Shannara, Shannara Trilogy. So again, and quite a lot, by the way, quite a lot of these books are in series of books rather than individual ones. Um, this is, in fact, a uh, three novel set. Uh, of course, the three novels, several generations of the Umas Ford family, is it, find themselves reviving the magical artifacts in the desperate hope to fight evil. Uh, that was 67, by the way. At 66, we've got the Rift uh, I'll War. I'll stop you there real briefly. Go on, uh, please do. I don't... It's been so long since I read this, I don't remember any particular details. But I do remember that I very much enjoyed it. And that it was... For, I, I always tie it up in my mind with the Zant series because I, I sort of read both of them at the same time, but the deal was that Zant was clearly easy reading. Shannara was um, fun reading, and it was detailed reading, um, but it was um, 
it, it always felt to me like it was more adult. It was, and I remember at that time too. It was, I had like sort of a sliding scale of fantasy stuff. And I remember it being, you know, at the easiest end is obviously C.S. Lewis with Narnia, and then and then the Xanth is like slightly. At, at least the early Xanth was slightly more challenging than that, and slightly more adult than that, surely. Um, and then there sort of came sort of Shannara, which was, you know, a full meaty. Um, really cool universe-building kind of thing. And then on the far end of it, at that point, and of course, you know, I'm in single digits at this point, or maybe just barely in double digits. But at, at the other end, it was Lord of the Rings, and I just could never penetrate it. I just couldn't. At that really early stage in my reading, I was just like, this is beyond what I can comfortably put in my mind. Um, but Sword of Shannara, I remember being something that I had to, at, you know, maybe 10 or 11 or whatever, really reach for. But it was still very cool. Right. Uh, I would just add there, and I'm trying to remember the name of the series, that uh, you, although you quoted, obviously, C.S. Lewis in regard of the Lion, Lich, and the uh, some of C.S. books, C.S. Lewis books are some of the hardest ones I've read. Um, and I'm thinking of his uh, trilogy books, and I can't remember the name of them now. Oh, the Space Trilogy? Yeah, the Space Trilogy one that he did. Um, right, that's at 100 or whatever on the list, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Those, are, those are much more difficult, you're right. But I, I mean, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe is obviously, he's written it for children, and it's obviously comprehensible at that level. And I don't think, you know, if you're if you're a reasonably intelligent kid, I don't think that you're having to struggle too much to understand um, well, certainly the initial entries in that series, maybe by the time you get to like you know Magician's Nephew or something like that or Last right. Battle, where it's a bit more esoteric that's a little bit harder to sort of put together, but it's still the language itself is not difficult, it's more that the concepts become more abstract at that point but sort of Shannara, I remember it, it was kind of like um, I had a similar experience later in life where, you know, I started to not read science fiction and fantasy, but just sort of traditional books. And I remember thinking while I was reading Tom Clancy that this was how Terry Brooks wrote fantasy in a very detailed, process-oriented sort of way that, you know, puts you plausibly into a um, into a universe in the same way that Tom Clancy, you know, with Jack Ryan novels, puts you really, you know, with with detail and, and great um, attention to plotting right within the middle of a real-world CIA thing. Uh, but th there is something about Brooks's writing style and that is... It's very clean, it's very crisp, and at the same time, it allows for imagination. And it's in some ways, there's something about Terry Brooks that is, that I remember at least, being better for me than Tolkien. Um, but um, I'm not sure I can exactly say what it is. I mean, because Tolkien is obviously attention, you know, great attention to detail, the creation of whole languages and things like that, but there was just something about Brooks where it was like, 
yes, this is fantasy, but it is it could be real. Um, but anyway, I, I would highly recommend it, even though I don't remember many of the details. Right. I'm just uh, welcoming um, uh, Ian into the room. And, um, sorry, Tim into the room. Uh, Ian will unmute you. I think he's just come to get himself sorted out with coffee. And I'm really annoyed. It's not the space. I'm trying to think of the actual, um, the C.S. Lewis real books that I'm thinking of. And it's, another series. I will look at it when I have a, a moment to do so. Okay, at number uh, 67, just let me repeat that then, uh, Terry Brooks, The Lord of uh, Shannara Trilogy. At 66, uh, Raymond E. Feist, The uh, Rift War Saga. And again, I'm pausing so people can jump in. 65, uh, I Am Ledger. Legend Richard Matheson, of course the the one that was used to make the um, the Omega Man film, and recently the I Am Legend with Will Smith. But I've got a feeling we ought to get Rick Wall in here because I think Rick Wall remembers an earlier version of that via film. Don't you, Rick Wall? I'm sure. Uh, I heard yes, you it. I remember the uh, the original. Um, uh, I Am Legend and, and the one before. The Omega Man, The Last Man on Earth, with Vincent Price. Ah, that was it. That was it. Exactly. Uh, how, how do you do? You rate this as being correct on the list about sixty-five, and is it uh, one that you you'd recommend or any comments? Um, really? Well, I would like to make uh, uh, with all the versions of the movies, uh, all versions of the book. Uh, if you combine the Vincent Price one with the newest one, you get something pretty damn close. Uh, but um, it's been, again, quite a while since I've read the book. But uh, I'd, I'd say if you could combine both movies um, and... Uh, uh, you'd have something as, as close to Hollywood uh, would ever get to a book, uh, in my right. in my opinion. Um, but uh, now I I like um, uh, um, the book, and uh, if I if I actually had to choose, I'd take the price version of. Uh, the the uh, movies over anything to be honest with you, but I thought the the I Am Legend uh, with uh, Will Smith did a nice job. Um, I I have some problems with uh, um, feeling tension and stuff in the, in the quote unquote tense parts of the the Smith thing, whereas with the uh, Vincent Price version, I had scared the crap out of me, and I recently saw it again, and it still scares the crap out of me. There's a part where the head of um, um, zombie, vampire, whatever you want to call him, is talking to Vincent Price, because they were friends at one point. And he's going, come on now. We want you to join us. 
it scares the crap out of me. <laughs> and I, I will just say that um, the I've got the Blu-ray of uh, I Am Legend, and the, the and I won't give any spoilers away. But on the the actual Blu-ray, and I assume on the DVD as well, they've actually put two endings there. Uh, the the one that they actually went with it on the theatrical release and a different ending. Um, I don't think it's any spoiler to say that one of the endings is designed so that there could be a sequel. I think basically that's the uh, the, the the top and bottom of it. And I just must uh, read back in text. By the way, I I missed reading something that Willis Girl had said, and I think that's in relationship to the uh, time traveller's wife. Um, more a sci-fi than a love story, in fact. A bit creepy. She first makes the adult Henry when she's five or six. Uh, very romantic, besides, despite the imprinting in her meeting him so young. But, yeah, but I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I, was, thought, thought I would. Okay, let's uh, move on. 64, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark. Um Amazing. Amazing novel. Uh, right? This thing is great. I'm a little surprised it's this low on the list because it's such a clever, clever idea. It's an alternate history of, um, let's call it Victorian England, even though the Victorian England is m- merely a stylized one. It's kind of like, you know, the sense that there is a... Victorian England that is presented in, you know, Blackadder Christmas Carol. Or um, a more recent reference would be this uh, bleak old shop of stuff that has recently aired on BBC One, which is fantastic. Um, It's this, this highly mannerized version of Victorian England in which magic is real. And you've got these two guys who are um, sort of, for lack of a better word, Jedis. I mean, they are they are the magic users, and they uh, exist in this world, and they, they it, it, instead of being, they purport to be magicians in the sense of, I guess, Talons of Wing Chang, you know, the, the magicians in there, um, except that their magic is real magic. And so there's this cover story going on kind of where a lot of people think that they're just trick magicians, but they actually are real magicians. It's just it's just a beautiful book, really well written, um, great insight from the author um, in, in terms of the dialogue, in terms of, you know, creating a world that seems familiar, but yet at the same time, you know it's not. Um, it, it hits a lot of buttons because it's not science fiction exactly. Um, it's not fantasy. It's alternate history. Um, so I, I just I can't recommend this one enough. It's really a gorgeous, gorgeous book. Excellent. We like that. We like recommendations. We like uh, so that's. Uh, we'll repeat it now. Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell sounds a little bit like uh, Jekyll and Hyde with that sort of uh, title given to it uh, by Susanna. Yeah, Susanna Clark. Okay, next one. I think people will recognise more of a film because uh, it was made into a film recently, and I'm not. 
wasn't um, trying to remember the, the the main actor in it, but it's uh, The Road uh, by Cormac McCarthy, a novel set in the indefinite futuristic po- post uh, apocalyptic world. Father and his young son make their way through the ruins of a devastated and American landscape, struggling to survive and preserve the last remnants of their own humanity. Um, so, um, I want to see Hardy. Ah, that's it. Vigo Mortensen. Thank you, Mike. Please come on audio. We need your contributions. Vigo Mortensen, of course, was, uh, and, and I believe, I can't remember the name of the young actor who was with him, but I, I believe, um, they they got uh, good reviews. So that's The Road, a film that's only came out about the last year, uh, maybe two years ago. Number 62, uh, The Sword of Truth series uh, by Terry Goodkind. Young Richard Cipher gradually embraces the destiny as the seeker of truth and sets out to stop the evil that others would unleash. Uh, and uh, by the way, Mike says that The Road... Excellent book, definitely worth reading. And uh, the top of this uh, one uh, is number 61, The Moat in God's Eye. Uh, my brother-in-law, Gary's probably, apart from the Dune series, is, is his favourite book. Written by that great uh, group, uh, pairing, of course, Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell. The accidental killing of a group of emissaries to Earth threatens man's survival. Uh, another one of these very large blockbuster books. I don't know if anybody has read it more recently than I and wants to comment, but um, definitely a real science fiction book. Not that easy to get into, but um, a really classic sci-fi book. And while I just wait to see if anybody comes in, I'm going to change tack somewhat. I'm going to refer back to my um, illustrated encyclopedia by John Clute. Um, and these are his recommendations for the different decades and we're going to read the books out I'm going to read out the books his classics of the 1980s Um, Timescape Gregory Benford absolutely brilliant that's one of my favourite books Um, uh, that's about um, one group of scientists in one time period trying to communicate with another time period to warn them of global devastation. Uh, and it in, involves tachyons, or a communication by tachyons uh, taking a signal back through time. Um, Ripley Walker by Russell Hobman. And by the way, again, interrupt if any of these are something you, you feel as though you need to talk about. The Snow Queen, uh, Joan D. Vinge. Uh, I wonder if that's uh, Walter uh, Vernavinge's uh, relation in some way. Uh, Down Below Station, C.H. Cherrell. Uh, Isaac Asimov, Foundations, Foundations Edge. Of course, that was a trilogy. Uh, that uh, that was the first book of the the Foundation series. Great stuff. Absolutely great. It's Foundations. Foundation, Foundation's Edge. In fact, this must be the second book in the series. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember the third one. What the third book was? Um, Landmark by Alistair Gray. And then one we've already covered in this list: the uh, Gene Wolfe series, The Book of the New Sun. Then another great series by Brian Aldiss, the Heliconia trilogy. 
Heliconia spring, Heliconia summer, Heliconia winter. Um, I, I only one. read spring. Okay. Uh, next one, New Romancer, William Gibson. Uh, very uh, landmark book, I think, in science fiction. Blood Music by Craig Bear. Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which in some of the lists that we've been looking at, and we will put links into later, uh, gets very, very high up in a lot of sci-fi lists. Isaac Asimov, uh, Through Darkest America. Um, Cytine, and I'm going to spell this, C-Y-T-E-E-N, by uh, C.J. Cheruth. A series that I really enjoyed and think should definitely be in this, this is the Uplift War series by David Brin. Uh, the three books I've got are The Uplift War, the second book, Star Tide Rising, which a lot of people read first, and Brightness Reef. Uh, absolutely brilliant, those. And I think I mentioned them last week. There were um, certain uh, species uh, sponsor other species into joining the sort of Galactic Federation and they get uplift them. And Earth is unique in terms of having two species, maybe three um, being uplifted. Uh, certainly humans and the dolphins are the next and possibly apes. Uh, Bruce Sterling, Islands in the Net. And one more, uh, Dan Simmons, Hyperion. Or Hyperion, I think it is. Uh, so that's the uh, ones from the 80s. Okay, we're letting people jump in, but I'm going to go. We're still only halfway through this, so I'm going to go through the um, uh, at number 60 now. Uh, if anybody's new, come in the room. I hope Ian will repost the link to this um, npr.org page. Number 60, Cher Terry Pratchett, Going Postal, uh, a novel of this world. Perhaps at this point, is there any real fan of this world novels in general? And maybe they want to explain why this one would be picked as the top one rather than, say, the colour of... Uh, uh, was it the colour of money, is it? I can't remember. Magic. Colour of magic. What, what I find odd about this list is that they'll have, like, the Lord of the Rings trillion and, you know, this series of books. But when they get to Terry Pratchett, they start listing them uh, singly, which is an odd thing, you know. Here we've got these groupings of books being, you know, uh, listed and then and then Terry Pratchett it's, it's separate separate books kind of weird um, I have not read The Going Postal but um, they they did actually uh, make a, a a TV movie of it and it's very well made very good um, they do a nice job making the any of if you if you want to watch any of them they've done The Color of Magic I think uh, they've done um, uh, The Hogfather Hogfather's very very good um, but yeah, I, I like all those books. Unfortunately, I haven't got that far and have not read Going Postal. But there's one coming up that I have read. So yeah, I, I, my son's read them all. I, I've read a couple. Of, is it Rincewind? One of the ones I've read. Yeah. And and uh, I think the, the yeah the uh, the the color one, color, color of magic, magic yeah. the eight, the eighth color in the rainbow, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but uh, he would Octarine, highly recommend those if he was Octarine. Good, yes. good name for an eight. It's, a, it's a shame. It's a shame <laughs> that we don't have uh, Graham Sheridan in here because he would be able to talk at length. 
as he also has a, a Pratchett podcast. Of course, indeed. Yes. Okay, it's we're up to... that we, we're, we're kind of skimming over it. <laughs> okay. Um, 59, the uh, Volk Osaigan saga. Perhaps I ought to ask Ian to do the next 10 after this. Um, at 58, the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant and the Unbeliever. But, oh, I didn't say who wrote that last one, did I? Sorry. Um, I've got to do this carefully because um, one of our listeners, Kathy, who's uh, still dec- painting and decorating, and says, make the podcast long. Don't care about the quality as long as they're long so she can <laughs> paint another room. Uh, she says she has to keep stopping and winding back. Uh, to catch the the book titles, and with my pronunciation, <laughs> uh, so it's the Vorkosagan Saga by Lewis McMaster Budjode, I think. Oh dear, dear. I think yeah, I think you have to do the next ten years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> throw me in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all right. At fifty-eight, uh, the Chronicles, as I say, of Thomas. Covenant, The Unbeliever, by Stephen R. Donaldson. Then we've got, as you say, number 57, we've got Small Gods, uh, Terry Pratchett, Discworld one. Yeah, um, which is, 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 is quite a good book. Um, and, and I mean, part of it, I guess, is that, that uh, based on, on, on your belief structure and, and how heavily a god is, is, is followed is, is, is based on the, the size of this god. Um, here, uh, brother, uh, a simple man leading a quiet life, tending garden, finds his life irrevocably changed when his god, speaking to him through a tortoise, sends him on a mission of peace. It's a, it's a neat book. I you know, I can't really elaborate too much on it because it's been a while, but I remember thoroughly enjoying it. And, and yeah, if you're a fan of the Discworld books, then you know it's. They're a neat set because it's not a series that focuses on one person. You know, in the beginning, you know, you get some similar characters popping up, and and you do get reoccurring characters showing up throughout the books. But um, you just get this nice thing where they just, you know, they focus on different uh, different places within this the this world, uh, different characters, and so you you get a different story every time. It's really really neat. Of course, Death is my favorite uh, reoccurring character. Because he's just funny. Yeah, I mean, my son's a bit yeah, funny. He, in, in his uh, in his flat, he's got he's bought. He was a member of the Discworld thing where you got sent. Well, you bought special plaques of the different guilds of uh, uh, Discworld, Discworld, and you get sent special ones. I think we get uh, Rick Wall. Can you just mute yourself if you're not going to speak, please? Um, and then we, he got uh, quite a few little statuettes and that and little purses, bags of money, and so on. Um, so really um, a, a big fan of that. Okay, number 56, uh, The Forever War, Joe Haldeman. Uh, he wrote Forever Peace, and I think the other one was called Worlds. But Forever War is is absolutely uh, a brilliant book to my mind. Uh, um, drafted into the ranks of Earth's interstellar warriors, Private William Man- uh, Mandela fights against uh, fights his fight against the Torans' secondary 
sorry, secondary to the side effects of faster than light space travel, which affects the rate at which he ages. So in other words, every time he goes on a, a skirmish and he comes back to Earth, like a hundred years may have passed by and he has to get used to the different uh, things that have happened on Earth and so on and he gets alienated from Earth society. But I mean, um, it's, it's a much updated novel of something like uh, Have Space Suit Will Travel, Starship Troopers or whatever. Um, and to my mind... Uh, his his best book, Forever Peace and Worlds, I read them, but uh, they didn't quite capture uh, the brilliance, I thought, of that first book. Again, let's just look and see if anybody's put anything in text. Can't see anything, so we'll move on. Uh, the Last Unicorn, Peter S. Beagle. And as we said before we started recording, uh, one of the uh, problems with this list compared with some of the others is it is sci-fi and fantasy, so... Um, um, not necessarily a problem if you're a fantasy fan, but um, fitting them both in the same list is a little bit of a, you know, a forced marriage, as it were. Uh, World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war by Max Brooks at uh, 54. 53, uh, Crypt, you can pronounce that one for me, can you see? You say that one, Ian. Crypt on, on my or something. Uh, Brilliant. The man's a genius. We'll have to let him do more. (laughs) Uh, By Neil Stevenson. Uh, Number 52, Stardust, Neil Gaiman. Now, anybody know about Neil Gaiman? I don't think anyone's ever heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Yes, I have. (laughs) But I've never read Stardust. We've we've all heard of him, uh, um, Rick Wallop. Just, just, before, just before we conti- <laughs> just before we continue on, uh, Mike. Welcome oh, to the audio. Yes, just, I was did you actually wanna... going to call in back when you were talking about Last Unicorn. Uh, Dave sort of skipped over yes. that one, but there's a there's an animated film uh, that goes along with that one that was made back in '82 by Rankin Bass, and it has quite the uh, quite the, the cast on the the voice list, the voice actors list. You have Mia Farrow as the as the unicorn, you have Alan Arkin playing a main character, you have Jeff Bridges, Tammy Grimes, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Lee, uh, I can never remember how his first name is pronounced, but Rene Abergenois, Odo from Deep Space Nine. You have all sorts of well-known actors there in that animated film. And as I said, it's a Rankin-Bass movie, and I finally saw it. It I didn't didn't see it until a few years ago, but it's a really good adaptation of 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 the book. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there. What was that other film with the unicorn in, with the uh, you know the Mission Impossible actor in it, Tom um, Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise? What? Or was that Willow or something? I'm thinking of hmm. one of his early I'm films. Where he's a you think I don't legend? Know. Legend. There you see, see people know they know what I mean. <laughs> I just need an interpreter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so that, thank you for that. Um, so the Neil Gaiman, of course, uh, we know him from uh, his contribution towards Doctor Who, the uh, the Doctor's Wife episode in particular. Um, but uh, I'm not familiar with this. I'm not sure whether this is the Stardust that was. Oh yes, it is. Now this is the thing that I brought up with Darth a while ago. This is the book that I thought he recommend the film that he recommended to me. But when I uh, 
mentioned it in a past episode. Uh, he had no recollection of it, but it, it is a star cast film called Stardust. In the quiet English hamlet of Wall, Tristan Thorne embarks on a remarkable journey through the world of fairy to recover the fallen star for his lover, ha- the hauntingly beautiful Victoria Foster. And um, that is a, a really uh, great cast. And um, it is a, it's quite a fabulously uh, exotic uh, film. Uh, and I hadn't realised that that was written by Neil Gaiman. So you can catch that as a... You don't have to read it, Ian. You can watch the film. (laughs) So, Stardust. Um, The the thing with with Stardust, though, is that Gaiman has said several times that the movie was really different from the book, and he wasn't happy with that. So, uh, the, the movie and the book, different things. Ah, Right. It's the same basic story, but it's a different interpretation than Gaiman would have wanted. Right. Okay, the um, Hyperion Cantos by Dan Simmons at 51. Okay, now, there was somebody last week who was going to talk quite a bit about the next one. So I think I'm going to uh, ask Ian if he just wants to go through 50 before I go on to the 90s. Do you want to go from 50 through 41 in. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, coming in at number 50, Contact by Carl Sagan. Oh, Sagan, 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 yes. Um, I've seen the movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how, how if anyone in the room is actually, and I'd uh, be interested to know whether anybody has uh, uh, read the book and if there are any major differences between the movie and the book. I've read uh, it, but the, oh. it's been too long since I've read mm. it to remember anything specific. Sorry, I was just noticing that Simon put something. I assume that's about the Neil Gaiman film Stardust, that the script was by Jane Goldman. So that's where the diversion is supposed to be made. But yeah, the, it's the Jodie Foster film, isn't it? The, yeah, yes. And Matthew McConaughey. It's a, it's a uh, lovely. I love. I love that movie. It's great. Yeah, I, I read the book myself, and... It's been a long time, and I can't remember any major differences between the book and the film. Uh, I remember the film more. I've seen it several times, and it's just an excellent film. Yeah. Jodie Foster has that brilliant uh, look of wonderment in her eyes, doesn't she? And yet the strength of character to believe that she would have taken on that challenge, as it were, and and that sort of um, you could see her having that sort of inbuilt insecurity because she'd lost her father so soon. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler, but that's one of the ways in which she is, um, has um, a construct made that will allow her to, to make the communication work. Anybody else want to jump in before Ian moves on? Uh, Tim says in the text chat, only seen the film once, disliked the ending, though, so I haven't rewatched it. And then he found the ending a letdown. And Willis Girl says she's read the book but never seen the movie. Um, yeah, see the movie. I'd be interested to see if there was any any major major differences. But uh, when the yeah, aliens, I, I can't. when they finally get the, the the clear alien signal through, is just if you got your a good sound, a, a pretty decent sound system on your TV, it's just blows you out of your seat. I just remember being in the theater and just going, "Whoa, <laughs> it was cool." Yeah, I can't remember any major differences, although, again, it's been 
quite a while since I read the book. Excellent book. Uh, great film. Um, kind of a long film, but I think they had to do that uh, to fit as much as they could from the book into the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Moving on down or up the list, depending on what your uh, orientation is. Ch- uh, coming in at number 49, Childhood End by Arthur C. Clarke. Brilliant. And I won't spoil the ending, but the the, en- the ending is really the, the, the thing that makes this um, this preconceived idea of what an alien race might be like when we eventually meet them. And I'll say no more than that. One of the most exciting Arthur C. Clarke sci-fi books I've ever read um, uh, other than 2001. Um, you know, uh, um, the description of, you know, it's not really part of the book, but it's like the, it, uh, in the introduction of the, the creature had the child and his claws and all this, and I'm sitting there, I'm Absolutely had to read it from end to end, which only took me a, a day, uh, and uh, I could not put it down. Yeah, I thought it Again, was excellent. But even so, I mean, some some of these writers, of course, have such a great body of work. It's almost hard to pick the one book of theirs that you would put at the, the top. But uh, certainly, that is. Uh, I thought it was a, a great book, written probably in the I don't know, it was late, written in the late fifties or early sixties, but uh, w- one of the ones I read quite. quite I seem years to ago. remember a low-budget movie made in the seventies. As a matter of fact, I was doing a search before we got up to it, and I can't seem to find it. But I could swear there was a low-budget uh, movie ma- made in the seventies. Uh, which was the height of low-budget sci-fi stuff. Uh, and, damn, I can't find it. I can't believe that. Yeah, Maybe I'm just that. imagining that, that there was, but for some reason I think that there was. And I have no idea who started it. Or, you know, it was nobody's, actually, but like I said, it was low-budget. But I could have sworn that I've seen it. Okay. Let's move on. Hey, hey, Dave. Yep. Could we go back to contact just for a minute? Absolutely. I wanted to mention if something, something else about that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, um, Carl Sagan, when he was writing this book, he was trying to uh, imagine a realistic way of, of faster than light travel. And at the time, you know, there were there were two popular sci-fi methods for that hyperspace and wormholes and the the scientific theory at the time was that wormholes were just unstable uh, that anyone trying to cross through one would be killed or wouldn't have time to get through it before it collapsed so he actually went to some scientists and said hey can you make this work can this really be a, a viable method for, for faster and light travel. And they actually did some research and found ways that it could work. So um, not only is this a great piece of fiction, but it, it also inspired uh, some thought into faster and light travel that could one day uh, maybe 
be used for real faster than light travel. Mm, all right. Excellent. And I'm, I'm trying to very quickly look up about this Lumin Arthur C. Clark, but when it was written, um, Charles End, uh, written in 1953. Uh, I mean, but the body of work he did starting, uh, the, one of the great books of Arthur C. Clarke to read, by the way, is called Prelude to Space, which he wrote in 1951, which is uh, sort of uh, a sort of... Um, a pseudo um, uh, biography of a, of a different different generations of a spacefaring family, but uh, I mean, you know, 2001 rendezvous with Rama, uh, fountains of paradise, um, the ghost from the Grand Banks, uh, lots of uh, the hammer of God, uh, a fall of moon dust, nine billion names of God. Uh, the Sentinel, lots and lots of books that are, uh, and of course, um, uh, one thing we should mention is the um, whether it's true or not, but the the fact that he supposedly invented the geostationary satellite, or at least um, was the one that posited about the future use of having um, a, a satellite that was at such an orbit that it's uh, it's time that it went round the planet was exactly geosynchronous, or what the word is, so that it would hover over a certain place and therefore be able to be used as a communication device. Um, so I think it was some scientific papers that he'd read, but he was the one that joined the dots. And he also talked about a, a space elevator as well, which is still being considered as a possible way of getting payloads up into the sky. Uh, they have to use sort of monofilament threads, something like this... Um, you know, these uh, made of graphene, maybe. It's going to be something that's got a lot higher tensile speed of uh, strength of steel, but obviously not the weight, because any cable made of steel would not be self-supporting, where if it was sort of some, something made from graphene, uh, it, it might work. Um, and that's the space elevator, where actually goods are taken up, and the end of the thing is so far away, it's like a, a yo-yo on the end of a string, in effect, uh, and it stays up there. But um, anyway, we're up to uh, 48, Ian, sorry. Not a problem. Coming in at number 48, Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Oh, I'm surprised he's got two in here. I mean, uh, I know a lot of people uh, 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 you know, really rave about Neil Gaiman's stuff, and, and, and Doctor Who fans quite rarely do so. Uh, but I would never have thought that he would have had two books in the top 100. But there you go. Oh wait, he he's got. Oh, spoiler! Never mind. Uh, read the book, loved it. Saw the movie, hated it. What was that? Was that was the movie called Neverwhere as well? Yes, actually, it was. Uh, I believe a mini series. Uh, and uh, not, in my mind, nothing like the book. The, the acting was good, but okay. well, I I think it was one of these books that can't be uh, translated into movies anyway. Um, uh, the one of the main characters lived in a uh, house where. 
it was like an interdimensional type house. You'd open the doors to this one room, and it would be actually somewhere else geographically and much bigger than what you'd think the house would be and stuff like that and in the book and in the movie it was like really disappointing <laughs> now, now wait a minute okay. so you you are getting things mixed up there because the book is not a novel the book is a novelization the original thing here is uh the miniseries. The film has not actually ever been produced yet. It, there is a script that's floating around, but the, the the thing that comes first is the, the miniseries. Oh, all right. BBC Two miniseries. This is a situation uh, that is akin to Hitchhiker's Guide. Everybody and their brother thinks Hitchhiker's Guide started as a book, when of course it started as a radio. Radio. Series. Yeah. Um, and and some people think it started as a television series because that's what they saw first. But no, the original thing is uh, a radio series, and in this case, the original thing is um, okay this well, mini series. So therefore, the the novelization here I thought was better. Uh, well, maybe, but it's not the original thing. Um, and so you also can't claim that um, unlike the other the, the previous book that we were talking about from Neil Gaiman, you can't claim that. You know, Gaiman didn't like the audiovisual version of this because that's what he came up with first. Mm. And Tim, uh, I think Tim Tim was making some points about. It. Were you referring to it being a TV show first, Tim? He's put something in text, but he is on audio. If he wants to make, comment, well, perhaps it, perhaps he's having audio issues. But uh, yeah. Uh, Tim's just agreeing with you, Darth. That, yeah, he realised that um, what you said, but yeah, okay, he's he's, he's got a sound issue. Well, he's he's got something on it in the background. So thank you for that clarification, Darth. And uh, so um, that explains it. So Ian, do we move up to yes, uh, number forty-seven, uh, the Once and Future King by T. H. White, which describes King Arthur's life from his childhood to the coronation creation of the round table and search for the Holy Grail. And this is Leo, the book that is responsible for me not liking Merlin, really. Um, uh, and why I tend to think that the the Camelot series is closer to what really the Arthurian legend is about. This, this is, you know, the, the book that really, I guess, relaunched 20th century interest in the Merlin legend, and it's fantastic. Excellent. Yeah, I was going to say, Ian, Ian likes uh, Merlin for different reasons. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on, number 46, J.R.R. Tolkien, this, uh, I'm, I'm knowing a little trip over this, Simularian, we want, uh, come on, Mike, this Simularian. is uh, yeah. The Silmarillion. Right. There you go. And I actually tried up. to... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't understand why the Silmarillion is this high on the list. Uh, no, I, I don't even read, understand. It's unreadable. I, I frankly don't even understand why it's on the list. Um, <laughs> but again, you know, I am not somebody who had a great interaction with Tolkien as a 
kids, so therefore maybe I'm not the best person in the world to judge it. But as a story, it's not a great story. I mean, it's got some bits in it. You know, it is. It's a. It's an index kind of. Um, yeah. It, but it, but it, it, it's very much like reading the Old Testament. I think. I mean, that, that's essentially what it is. You know, it's it's tracing the lineage of all the characters that are in the um, Lord of the Rings main trilogy. But, you know, I guess for me it's kind of uh, the experience that I understand some people have of the prequel trilogy in Star Wars. You know, some people really hate the prequel trilogy. Um, and I'm... I'm already lukewarm enough on on the main trilogy of um, or quadrilogy, I guess, of the Lord of the Rings thing, but this is just adding insult to injury. Uh, I, I mean, I do recognize it as a great work of world building, I suppose. But um, is it an enjoyable read? Not really. I think it, didn't you write it as more to offset the fact that. Uh, uh, because he, he, he might, uh, you ought to come in on this one, but the Lord of the Rings was, his, he saw that as his more frivolous work, didn't he? Because he met with this society of people that actually were sort of linguists and uh, intellectual, the, the roots of language and so on. Um, and this was sort of a, an academic work almost, wasn't it? It it was really, it, well, the, th- the thing with all this, with the, the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, is that Tolkien was trying to build his own mythology, and Lord of the Rings is, you know, it's, it's the adventure, it's, it's the recount of this grand adventure, and The Hobbit was, you know, the small adventure leading up to it and all of that. But Silmarillion, it's, as Darth said there, he, uh, Tolkien really wrote this one as sort of a, sort of a Bible for the, for the, uh, the Lord of the Rings universe for everything that came before he he told the creation story of of middle earth he told how uh, how all of these creatures were sung into existence and the whole world was sung into existence and he told the, all the ancient linea- lineages and it it's a very difficult book to read i i've read it several times and i i like the book and i agree that it is a difficult book to read i can't can't find that many people who have actually started reading it and and made it through to the end. It's, it's like it's, reading a Cliff's Note type. It book. is. It's. It is. And it, it, it's not really. I don't really think it's meant to be taken as you know a single book, single book as something just to read all the way through. It's. It's not. It's more of an anthology. It's just all of these ideas put together, and it's it's an anthology really rather than a narrative. And uh, but if yeah. you are looking for the history of of, of Middle Earth. Everything, everything that came in, in the ages before, it's a good read. There's a lot of good stuff in there. It's just, uh, yeah, it's a challenging read. Yeah, I think really to to go for this, we really need uh, uh, Anthony Burge, the and uh, Jessica Burke, the well Anthony, uh, who's uh, wrote the mythological dimensions of Doctor Who, uh, and we interviewed him on one of our past episodes. By the way, um, he his main area of interest is uh, Tolkien, so um, he's the guy, really, that would be able to give a lot of background. So if uh, if Anthony's listening, if he could come on one of our calls and just give us some background on that, that would be great. But, um, yeah, uh, that's uh, Anthony Burge, Jessica Burp, 
look up for the mythological dimensions of Doctor Who, but of course his main interest is uh, Tolkien. Alrighty. Moving on down the list. Number 45, The Left Hand of Darkness, from Ursula K. Le Guin. Well, again, I've read that book a long, long time ago. I remember being pretty impressed with it, but I, w- I would be very... Well, I can read what the blurb it says there, but I would uh, I'm finding it very hard to actually remember about it. So I don't know if anybody else feels as though they can comment I'd rather comment on the next one. Okay, then number 44, Ringworld from Larry Niven. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Bob Shaw wrote a book called Orbitsville. In Orbitsville, the whole uh, sun is encased with an outer planet, a Dyson sphere, as you will, uh, from the uh, thinking of the the Star Trek uh, Next Generation uh, Relic episode. But Ringworld was an actual ribbon of land that... uh, was on the actual orbit of a the, the exact right distance for a, uh, an orbit, and as you can see from the actual illustration on that book, there were artificial clouds, and there were actually two side walls down it of a, I think they were like a, a thousand feet to keep the 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 atmosphere in, and of course it's moving round, it's spinning, so it's there's like centrifugal force as well, and so on, but um, I, I, that was a brilliant. Brilliant, Brooke. Uh, I mean, you've got to think of something like a hundred thousand times the um, the the land size of one Earth. Uh, I think in Orbitsville it was something like ten million times. But uh, really good book, hugely influential, as it says. Niven's hugely influential. I just said it again. 1970 novel of an outer space expedition to a mysterious object, a vast artificial world in the shape of a ring that goes horribly wrong. I don't know whether there's any other comments. No? Not that I can add. I love it, though. Yep. Um, I I think I met him once. Learned him. Oh! At a convention in Wellington. Didn't know who he was. My brother did. Yeah, I think it was at, uh, at DEFCON. They had DC Fontana, uh, Julian May, Larry Niven. Uh, that's all the people there. I think that's the one I... Yeah, I think... Yeah, DEFCON. Sounds about right. Back in 1993. Says a lot. <laughs> Probably back <laughs> right about that time that photo was taken that I posted earlier before the show started. Anyway... <laughs> Nice guy. He, if if it is the person I'm thinking of, he actually he was walking through the bar um, at the you know because we finished with the proceedings of the, the convention for the night, and he was walking by. And we said, "Here, have a seat," and he did. <laughs> so there we were. We sat there for about an hour, hour and a half. My friends talked to him more than I did, but I thought if my brother could see this now, he'd just like kill me. Because <laughs> here I am sitting with a guy I have no idea about, but I know he does. He'd just be like. Damn it! Anyway, movement number 43. The Mistborn Trilogy by Brandon Anderson. And hello, I'm here to talk about this because oh, I actually go. met the author. 
Ah. Actually, the second author on this list that I've met, I met uh, Cormac McCarthy at my university a couple a few years ago. But I've also met Brandon Sanderson just uh, at a release event for another book he was writing. But Mistborn's um, trilogy, I've not read any of those. I've read well the, the main trilogy. I have read The Alloy of Law, which is the latest one in that series. It's a a prequel to the others, and it's actually quite good. Uh, it's 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 a fantasy fantasy series where the, the main form of magic is are these people who are a, these people with the ability to uh, alamancy is the ability they're called alamancers and they're able to manipulate metal. So whenever any anything that contains metal is something that they can ex, that they can draw power from and manipulate. They can actually sense metal in anything nearby and reach out and and affect it. And uh, you have this it's it's this story of the of this basically this this society that. Uh, where these elementers are vying for control, and uh, it's either it's sort of like set in kind of a blend of the fantasy and futuristic setting. And the, the prequel that I'm writing that I that I read is uh, it's set well before this society took off. It's like a thousand years or so before it, and you meet all of the the uh, ancestors of all these characters. It's a really good alloy of law from what I've from you know. It's a good read. I'll have to go back and read the trilogy itself at some point. So. Yeah, that's all I have to say. And this, there's another book. There's there are some other books later on this list that Sanderson has involvement with, and I'll leave it at that. Alrighty, thank you very much, sir. All right, coming in at number forty-two, The Mists of Avalon from Marion Zimmer Bradley. Anything, Darth? No. <laughs> I've certainly read some of her books, but I don't remember, and I can't remember them. But I re- I remember that uh, author's name. Um, I'm trying to remember what... I think she's more famous for other books than that. I don't know. I mean, this is, again, an, another one of the the um, Arthurian legend tales, but the, the difference here being it's more... Um, what's the word? Um, it's off-center. Um, you know, in terms of its perspective, the perspective of of maybe you know the once and future king. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty much you know on Arthur dominantly. Um, this one is more told from, I guess you'd call it the side because it, it focuses more on. You know, I mean, this is feminist Arthur, really. I mean, this is more about what the. Um, uh, you know, Morgane, Morgana character um, is thinking... Let me help you out a bit there. Gwen there. is thinking... That, yeah, With sorry. the description here, it says, retells mm-hmm. the legend of King Arthur as perceived by the woman's central tale from the zealous Morgane, sworn to uphold her goddess at any cost, uh, to the devout... Uh, oh, great, Welsh. Thanks. <laughs> Guinevere. Uh, Guinevere. It must be Guinevere, yeah. <laughs> That's where I figured it was, but it's just like, oh, great. <laughs> Pledged uh, uh, to the king, but drawn to another. Right, and I mean, I think uh, this is that—that's a really good description. I'm um, looking at that now, which I didn't see before. But yeah, and I think maybe that's why. Again, you know, and I keep—I I hate to get doing this because I know you guys like Merlin, but I think that's another reason why I don't why Merlin was so frustrating to me because I mean, to me, when when you combine this image of. Uh, the Arthurian legend plus uh, Once and Future King, it's so much more about. I mean, 
Morgana is is really important, and and you know she was just locked away for two seasons, really, on on Merlin. And I'm like, come on, get on with it. This is the badass character. What are you doing? Um, and I think this is where that comes from. And I think too, what I what I really remember about Camelot is thinking, okay, this is definitely the Mist of Avalon, Guinevere. That's in Camelot, definitely, because um, she's she's strong, but yet there's a, a strong sense of, of sensuality about her. Not that sensuality is the opposite of strong. That, that's not true, but. Um, the, the Guinevere that comes across in Mists of Avalon is just a formidable character, uh, kind of, in in a way, kind of like Eleanor of Aquitaine, or the real-life story of Eleanor of Aquitaine, who, you know, is defined in a lot of ways by using romance as a way to affect political change. And that's kind of what you... Um, you get with the Guinevere Mist of Avalon. It's it's an extraordinary work, and I think Dave, you're right. Marion Zimmer Bradley. I can't. There is something else for which she's known. I wouldn't say that she's known more for that thing. Which I can't remember what over, it is. The Dark Over series. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I wouldn't say that she's more known necessarily for that than Mist of Avalon, or the reverse. I think she's equally known for both. But um, I've not read the Dark Over thing, but I have read this, and it's it's. A really satisfying read, and I think that this list has it right in a way. I think that this is probably a little better than the Once and Future King, and the reason is, you know, because of the the difference in perspective. You know, this is taking the tale that we all know and telling it from, you know, and the tale that we all know being one that is fairly male centric, and, and instead telling it from a. a female point of view, that makes it much more interesting in the same way that, you know, um, Wicked takes the the Wizard of Oz myth and tells it from the perspective of the Wicked Witch, um, and so therefore we get new insight there. Um, This is doing the same sort of thing. Right. And uh, Willis Girl said she loved the Mist of Avalon. Interesting feminist take on the Arthurian legend, Plor, Morgan the Fay. All right. Coming in at number 41. I guess that starts, stop saying coming in at. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dave. I'm not going to do this one. You do this one. <laughs> or, hang on a second. Mike! <laughs> the Bil- yeah, The Belgariad by David Eddings. I haven't read the book, but I just know how it's pronounced. There you go. (laughs) That'll do. (laughs) That'll do. See, we we haven't been along here for something. (laughs) Eddings' five-volume epic fantasy follows young farm boy uh, Garen as he is drawn into a quest for a stolen mystical orb and the rich world of prophecy and power that surrounds it. Okay. Right, number forty. The well, ember. No, let me stop. Let me stop you then, just well, then to go. Why didn't you stop me before I said, and number forty. <laughs> because I was waiting. We were pausing, waiting to see if anybody else jumped in. Uh, I'm actually with the nineties on the uh, illustrated encyclopedia by John Clute. So let me just go through these. Uh, Craig Bear, Queen of Angels, um, The Difference Engine, William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. Take Back Plenty, 
Colin Greenland, um, Sarah Canary, Karen Joy Fowler, White Queen by Gwyneth Jones. Not heard of many of these. Uh, uh, Stations of the Tide, Michael Swanwick, Steel Beach, John Varney, Red Mars, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, Verna Finge, A Fire Upon the Deep, uh, Doomsday Book, Connie Willis, The Parable of the Sower, Octavia Butler. The only book I've read of Octavia Butler is, um, ooh, what's that one called? Um, it, she's, it's about a, 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 a Zeno, oh, I'll remember it later. Anyway, let's skip that, David. Uh, Beggars in Spain, Nancy Cress. Uh, Paul Park. Uh, oh, gosh. Coelithesis. I'm going to spell this one out. C-O-E-L-E-S-T-I-S. Don't know what said. The Broken God, David Zindel. Uh, Brian Aldis, uh, Somewhere East of Life. Again, the most famous one of Brian Aldis I know is Hot House, which I really enjoyed. Uh, Ian M. Banks. Remember, Ian Banks uh, uses the M when he's writing science fiction. The uh, Fearsome Engine. Um, Brittle Innings, Michael Bishop. Ultimate Egotist, Theodore Sturgeon. So, not many of those from the 90s I remember, although I do know quite a number of those actual authors. There we are, that's the uh, the 90s done with, Ian. And uh, this uh, book actually stops at the end of the 90s, so I haven't got another set of 10 to read from now on. So, should I go forward? Or can you do another 10? I can do another 10. If you want okay. more that you want to comment on, then and I can. Where was I, 40? Yeah, 40. Right? Yep. Or was I hitting number 30? Oh, okay, number 40. No, for- the M- hmm? 40, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we're on the same wave, aren't we? Brilliant. I don't know how we do it. Uh, I don't know. It's like we're in sync. All right, number 40, The Emperor Chronicles, by Roger Zelazny. And moving swiftly on, then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a, a little known book. I don't think anyone's ever heard of this one. Uh, the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Never heard of it. No, I don't think anyone's Never ever heard of it. Never surprised it. Hey, it's it. so yeah. low. Is he new? <laughs> Is he new? No, seriously. Uh, great book. And like, yeah. like um, uh, Dave said, why is it so low? <laughs> And if nobody just wants to talk about that, can we just let Tim in for a few minutes? He's going to drop off shortly, and it'll give people time to think about what they want to say about War of the Worlds. But you want to comment about um, which book was it, uh, Tim, and what number does it come out? Well, the Hitchhiker's books, Dave, come in way, way near the top of this list. And um, a lot of these books in this list, I've, I've seen adaptations of them on TV or film, but I've never actually read the book but with The Hitchhikers, I've read all five books, listened to all five radio plays, seen the film, seen the TV series. 
Um, and and it's it's the anniversary of Douglas Adams's um, birth today. He'd have been sixty. Wow. And there's an event going on in uh, West London today. There's a few photographs floating around. Uh, apparently, there's been dancing rhinos on stage because <laughs> uh, that, that's to mark one of the charities that he supported. Uh, sort of Save the Rhino charity. He uh, he did a charity run during his lifetime uh, in a rhino suit. Um, well, they're just they're just still extremely good books, and the the radio plays hold up incredibly well as well. I mean, I, I was listening to... I, th I thought earlier today, I thought I must do something to mark uh, this Douglas Adams 60 day. And so I, I dug my Hitchhiker's Series 1 radio play off the shelf and I just listened to it all the way through for three hours. And it's still brilliant, even though I know bits of it word for word and I find myself saying it particularly along to the book bits. And the the... The, the the quality of the books, I mean, even Douglas, I think, would have admitted did go downhill, uh, and his heart wasn't necessarily in it for the later ones. But the the first two or three of them, particularly the first one, is just just work a genius, absolutely brilliant writing. It's 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 good science fiction. It's good comedy. It's good characters. Uh, Arthur Dent still holds up as this just wonderful perplexed and harassed every man and um I, I don't think the thing will ever die it just keeps getting reborn every few years in different forms and um this summer uh the radio cast are doing a tour of the uk and uh that's going to be one of my highlights of july is seeing that uh on the stage locally just whole evening of hitchhikers there um doing highlights from all five books so you sort of get a bit of bit of best of everything but um yeah, yeah. i had to drop in and talk hitchhikers because just brilliance and those those books will never die certain books will never die like the lord of the rings and the hitchhikers they'll be around when we're all long gone yeah we we have quite a lot of them on on tape and yes i'm talking tape not disc and, and mm. the, the number of times they were getting chewed up in the car because some would like to listen to them while I was driving and, uh, you know, you have to keep sort of trying to unravel them and roll them back in and <laughs> they certainly got worn out. Yeah. Need to digitise uh, them, Dave. Right. <laughs> get get the CDs. The CDs are going down in price. Um, you can probably download them now and stick them on an iPad. I think uh, they're no, all available on, on the iTunes. I think I just wind my son up and tell me to recount it. <laughs> oh, you, you just get get one for Christmas every year for the next few years. There's only five of them. Right, yeah. But I must admit, I really enjoyed the, the radio plays. That version, really, I really did enjoy. Well, the the, 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 the sound effects and the music and that, they bring it all to life. And um, I was saying to my brother earlier, it, it's just so incredibly well cast, the radio version as well. I mean, when they made the TV version, Douglas said he just wanted to keep everyone they'd cast on the radio. And the, there was a bit of a fight about this behind the scenes. And so they recast some people for TV. And you can see why, because it's a visual medium. And they brought in uh, David Dixon to play Ford on television. And he, he is perfect for it on television but 
in the end, you can tell he's in some ways taking his keys from Jeffrey McGiven, who played it on the radio. But um, yeah, they're 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 still brilliant books. They're wonderfully there's some wonderfully well observed stuff in 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 the books that I'd recommend people read the books or check out the audio books because there are little details and things in there, little comments on on British life that you won't necessarily quite get uh, the benefit of in the radio versions. Okay. Alrighty. Yeah, Thank I'm you, gonna drop, drop off now because uh, being humans on in an hour and get a few things done before then. Okay. Alrighty. Thanks, Tim. Well, thanks for coming in. Bye, Tim. All right. Number thirty-eight. Well, did, did anybody want to say anything about wars? Well, we were giving people time to think while Tim did that little bit. I love this book. I read it when I was like 11 years old and I not the most coordinated kid and I was made fun of at that time. Well, we all know kids can be cruel, especially the kids that are quote unquote weird and the teacher's pet, namely me or nerds. Like I said, namely me. And I wanted to be like Charlie. You know, I want to be uh, uh, normal, quote unquote. Maybe some scientists can make me, quote unquote, normal. Uh, and uh, you know, of course, the ending was that downer, but still, I liked the the book and the related to it at that time. And, Yeah. Anybody I mean, else want to come in on flowers for Algernon? It's actually really, if I'm right, it's actually more of a short story than a than a full book, isn't it? It's or a novelette. Uh, a novelette yeah, it's a, no, it's a novelette more than a than a book. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Keyes wrote it. Yeah, and, and as you say, it was made into a film. And the was it was the Lawnmower Man based on this? The film Lawnmower Man. No, that was based on a Stephen King story. He probably got the idea <laughs> or inspiration from it, but right. I believe it was written uh, Flowers for Algernon in the early. Um, I'm sorry, mid to late sixties. Right, I, I seem to remember actually hearing it as a radio play myself first before I read it as a book. And I think uh, I think it's one of the ones that BBC recycle on their uh, what used to be BBC Seven now's Radio Four Extra. Uh, I'm sure that's one of the ones that they've uh, they've had on doing the rounds on that. Already, number thirty-seven, twenty thousand leagues under the sea, the Jules Verne. Brilliant. The book really? that that made me decide I really want to be a marine biologist when I was young. When I read it. I wanted to be Captain Nemo. <laughs> I thought that would be Party. so cool. Number 36. The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. 
again, who is this guy? Why does he get so I don't get it. Do you? What? <laughs> I love the time machine. It's fantastic. Yeah, great book. I'm surprised yeah. it's down at 36. I yeah. thought it would have been higher up on the list. Just a, just a classic. Yeah, at number uh, 35. Absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah. No, it's okay. I was going to say, and and coming in at number 35, uh, a canticle for uh, Leibowitz. I yep. didn't murder that. By Walter M. Miller Jr. Number I 34. Think, uh, <laughs> Gee, I was going to say. Can't get the long pause. <laughs> well, I, I, I was wondering, I, I, I think that was a book that I actually gave up on. There's only about three or four books I've started writing, reading in science fiction that I haven't made it to the end, and I think that's one that I, I did give up on. Miller's uh, 1959 novel follows the monks of the Order of St. Leibowitz as they attempt to preserve the remnants of civilization after a nuclear war. Why did Number. you give up on it, Dave? I think it was a bit dry. I think, uh, you know, and I'm not saying it's like Fahrenheit 451, but it was a sort of, um, I think it was more to do with, poli- not politics, but, um, you know, about um, social social engineering and things. I, I think was just curious. Or I... things like that. That's how I remember I was... it, but... Uh, <laughs> I was just curious. I haven't read it myself, but I never even heard of it actually, and I just was surprised something that high was I haven't heard of, and yeah. why you didn't uh, care for it. Yeah, I don't know why it's as high as it is compared with the the ones we've just mentioned below it. Yeah. Right. Just to backtrack slightly, um, missed in the text chat. Uh, Will's girl said flowers for Algernon, a bittersweet short story. She cried at the end. And Rick Hall had to go release the Hellhound, uh, so as uh, departed from the room. So we'll catch up with him again soon. Number 34, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, from Robert A. Heinlein. Well, I'll just make a general comment. I, I, I love this author's work, uh, read lots of his books and uh, again uh, it's hard to, to I mean this uh, uh, To Sail Beyond the Sunset um, uh, Friday oh I'm trying to think of some of the other books I've got to hand here um, Strange uh, Stranger in a Strange Land I think that's his as well uh, lots of really high quality books um, The Day After Tomorrow uh, our spacesuit will travel. Uh, space cadet, space family stone, stranger in a strange land, time enough for love. Uh, just a, a starship troopers, a, a real hard sci-fi writer, hard SF. Oh. No, I don't know whether Ian's waiting for me to, to oh, finish sorry. or what. Yeah, I, was, I was having trouble with my mouse. Uh, <laughs> keeps running across the desk. Um, number 33, Dragon Flight uh, by Anne McCaffrey. I know my brother was big into the the, the Dragon Riders of Pern and, and all that. I've never read it myself. Anybody in the room? 
Well, not that one. The one I remember is the ship that sang. She did a series of books where these ships had personalities. Of course, she's only just died recently, I think, Anne McCaffrey, only a few months ago. But again, very... And it's nice to see, by the way, if you noticed, uh, as we've gone through this section, we've had we've had uh, another half dozen female writers, so um, I'm, not say, I'm not saying they make up a third of the list, but they are at least... Uh, reasonably well present, uh, represented. Right. All right. Number 32, Watership Down by Richard Adams. An allegorical tale of survival about a band of wild rabbits who leave their ancestral home to build a more humane society. Chronicling adventures as they search for a place to establish a new warren where they can live in peace. Yeah, the amazing thing about this was when it came out as the animated story, mm-hmm. that it was so successful because it's quite, quite horrific in parts. I read this book. I read this book in eighth grade, and I didn't care for it at all. Maybe I'd appreciate it more today, but uh, it was just very long and drawn out, and I just did not care for it. And Willis Girl puts, she thought it was just a cartoon about rabbits. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. You watch it. If you think, if you think uh, uh, the other one was bittersweet that we were talking about, the um, um, Flowers, the for, Flowers Algernon. for Algernon, think of this as flowers for a, a sweet white rabbit. <laughs> I, I think you'd right. like it, Willis Girl. All right, Robert A. Highland pops up again, or Heinlein, I'm not entirely sure. Highline. Both. Heinlein? I think so, yeah. Right. Starship Troopers. I've seen part of the movie and wasn't impressed, but then again, it's a movie. I think the book's better than the movie, uh, and the later movies. I watched, one of the, I watched one of the later movies. Oh, dear, that was absolutely awful. Uh, it, and it had... Uh, I watched it because it had... Um, had to... Not to power in it, what she called um, uh, the girl out of uh, Star Trek next, uh, Star Trek Generations. To, uh, not go. Uh, Jolene Taylor, who played um, in the, um, the the latest of the Star Trek series. So I watched it because she was in it. You'll know why. Uh, yeah, it was rotten. <laughs> Rotten stuff, but the first one was quite good. But it still overdid this sort of um, communist type, um, you know, um, uh, well, communist stroke fascist. But the, the, you know, the way the the world needs you and join the Marines and earn your citizenship, which seemed to be a bit overstated. I don't remember it being that prominent in the books. Dave, I think you were referring to Jolene Blaylock. Yeah. From Star Trek Enterprise? Yeah. In his head, it's not referring. I'm trying to remember what what was the name in that? Uh, To Paul. It was that, right, yeah. Anyway, it was about the third film in the Starship Trooper one, and it was. was, I don't think I got to the end of it. Anyway, moving on, because we've still got 30 more to go. Wow. Clockwork. Coming in at number 30, uh, Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. 
to me, this, uh, this isn't science fiction. Uh, uh, I mean, I suppose it is science fiction because it's comment on society, but I thought it more of a political statement than anything else. Yeah, I even more associate the author Anthony Burgess with the beat writer generation than sci-fi or fantasy or anything, so that's my take. And this book was definitely more of the beat style. So I wouldn't really include it on the list of sci-fi per se, but that's my thought. Yeah, I was wondering why it was on this list also. Alrighty, Dave, would you handle the next ten? Yeah, okay, yeah, I will do. Uh, Neil Gaiman, number th- third on the list, the Sandman series. Uh, Gaiman originally told his tale of Morpheus, the Dream King, whose interactions with mortals uh, rare, rarely end well, and those fractious uh, extended family includes the personifications of death, despair, desire, and destiny. Uh, 75 issue comic book series over several years. The hugely influential series is now collected in 10 grade volumes. So are we saying that this is a comic book rather than a science fiction book? Um, I honestly have no reference to it uh, other than the fact that we that Neil Gaiman does have a good track record of producing uh, very interesting stories, but I can't comment on the Sandman series. So yeah, move the to Sandman to series is absolutely a uh, graphic novel. Um, it's right. definitional to the medium. It, um, I mean, uh, the other graphic novel that you have on this list is, I suppose, it's got to be Watchmen, I would imagine. And maybe, I don't know, I haven't looked far enough. Maybe V for Vendetta is on this list, too. I'm not sure. But um, Sandman was just... Uh, well, let's put it this way. It was so genre busting, I suppose, that it forced, um, well, I don't know if it for. I'm not quite sure where the cart and the horse are in this, but DC essentially had to, either they had to create Vertigo, which is a totally different label for them, imprint, or they were starting the imprint anyway, and this was sort of the first thing that came along. I'm not quite sure... I can't remember now. It's lost in the mist of time to me whether this thing started out as just a straight DC title and then became Vertigo or whether it was always Vertigo or whatever. But nevertheless, if you think about what Vertigo as an imprint is, and that is to say it's it's something that produces essentially not superhero titles, uh, but rather titles that don't fit neatly into the traditional comic book genres, uh, then this series is definitional. Um, it's it's extraordinary on, on a lot of different levels. Uh, you know, Gaiman, of course, gets a lot of the credit for the writing of it, but the art is perfectly matched to it, too. And you know we we forget a lot of the, you know who the artist is and all that, but it it's oh man, um, I, I wish I had a, more of the details to mind, but I, I you know I want to say this is the the kind of graphic novel. It's not the first one that would have gotten to the New York Times bestseller list because I guess 
that Watchmen actually predates it, and Watchmen definitely went on New York Times bestseller list, which is unusual for any sort of sequential art. Um, but it certainly did go on the New York Times bestseller list. It certainly is something that, even if you're not a fan of comic books, that you still might have read because it's such an extraordinary story, and it did require to be told in terms of sequential art. It wouldn't have worked, I don't think, nearly as well as it did without the art there. Um, it I th- At a time in the comics industry when, honestly, things were looking pretty bleak and the utility of superheroes was starting to, I don't know, wane... And people were trying to reinvent superheroes, but in ways that largely weren't that satisfying. Um, At a time when, you know, Superman was dead, and um, a lot of the DC line was going through what now is regarded as a very unsatisfying turn for the characters. And, And... comic book art started to be less... uh, We're talking the 90s, really, in comic books. And the 90s is sort of... For comic books, it's kind of like, you know, what happened to Doctor Who in the 90s. It's kind of a a wilderness, a wasteland, uh, where the only thing that most people remember these days is that they killed Superman. Against that sort of backdrop, you have Sandman, which was... I don't know how to put it. It was it was a revitalization. It was using the the medium in in a way that it hadn't quite been used yet, um, and it, I think it gave a lot of hope to people who were using the medium to tell serious stories. Um, so that. I think it's possible to say that without Sandman, you wouldn't have things like maybe the Green Mile or Persepolis or, I don't know, lots of books that were trying to tell a story that normally, you know, until that point had never really been told in comic books. Um, just, Just the idea of uh, having a... A, yes, something that was issued by issue originally, um, but nevertheless something that you knew was a story with a limited run. You knew that there was a point to the story that the story would end, um, that you weren't just putting out one issue after another, that it wasn't just episodic. It was actually trying to tell a complete narrative that was going to end. Um such that you didn't feel cheated when Sandman ended because you knew that was the deal all along. Um, that's it, it. It was just it was just different. It was just something that comics didn't do that much of, and certainly not on that sort of scale, and certainly not to that level of acclaim before Sandman. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're going to put any single comic book on this. Uh, list, it's got to be Sandman. Personally, I think it's an injustice that this is lower than Watchmen, um, but whatever. They are they are kind of 
two peas in a pod. But the thing about Watchmen that makes it less satisfying to me is that it's derivative. It is, you know, a retelling of the standard tropes of comic book fiction, of superhero fiction. Um, whereas Sandman is, it has, it's, it's, it's nothing to do with what comic books normally deal with. And if you've never read a comic book in your life, it's the kind of thing that you could pick up and get sucked into, and you'd be like, okay, I understand now, having read Sandman, I understand why people like this medium. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I was just looking at the page. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there wasn't just one artist with that. I mean, the amount of work must be tremendous. Uh, it lists about 10 different artists that worked on that. Um, with Neil Gaiman, and it also mentions other creators, Mike Dringenberg and Sam Keith, along with. Uh... Okay, so um, I've thank actually, you for I've, just um? breaking in here. I've actually read one Sandman book. I just realized when I was looking through the list of the different artists, but uh, the one that I read was I read it because of the artist. Well, of course, Neil Gaiman, but the artist for this one I, was the, the book I read was uh, the Sandman, the Dream Hunters, and there's a link to it there to the Wikipedia page. But the uh, the artist for that was Yoshi it was Yoshitaka Amano, uh, uh, an artist who's more well known for his for his work with the the Final Fantasy video game series in the early, uh, at least the first half of that series, one through six at least. He did the box art and a lot of the illustrations for the Final Fantasy series. So his his artistic style is very unique. It's very stylistic. It's very identifiable. And I saw this one at this book at my libra- library several years ago and saw that Amano-san was the uh, artist and I read it and I quite liked it. Uh, the Dream Hunters, it's it's a standalone book, sort of. You don't have to read the other Sandman books. And it's not it's not a graphic novel style. It's it's You have a page of text opposite a page of illustration, so it's not exactly graphic book style where it's panels uh, with text interposed. Uh, it's a it's a good story and uh, I liked the artwork because I love that uh, Yoshitaka Amano's style. So, well, well thanks for that there. input. Yeah, but I'm going to have to deduct five points from you. Because oh, as an English major, because for an English major to say very unique annoys me as hell. If it's oh, unique, yeah, it's unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, all the all sorts of phrases there that annoy me as well. I don't know why I said that. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> you, you forgive me. Uh, number 28, Cat's Cradle, Kurt Vonnegut. Again, stop me if you want to buy one. Uh, 27, The Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury. 26, Snow Crash, uh, Neil Stevenson. Number 25, now again, uh, Rick Wall's not here, but... Uh, no doubt he would make a comment here. The the Stand by Stephen King. I automatically assume Stephen King to be a, a, a writer of uh, horror stories and uh, psychological thrillers, I suppose you could call them. So, again, I'm not quite sure why that one would be in here. Uh, 24, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I think probably most people would perhaps have thought would have been in a higher rating than that by Arthur C. Clarke because it was 2010 and so on. And um, 
it, it has benefited from the uh, the fabulous uh, film version and the sort of uh, iconic monolith and the uh, the the ape throwing the the bone up into space. So uh, visually, uh, that had a stunning effect. Whether as many people have uh, read the book have seen the film, I don't know, but um, very uh, very sort of uh, important book one would think. Again, 23, Stephen King, The Dark Tower series. Again, not quite sure of this. Just let me read what it says about it, give you an idea to whether you think it's science fiction. Roland, the world's fat last gunslinger, tracks an enigmatic man in black towards a forbidding dark tower, fighting forces both mortal and otherworldly on his quest. So that sounds a little bit of a mixture of... Uh, things. 22, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood. Uh, of course, that was also made into uh, uh, a film. Uh, this is one of these sort of uh, dystopian futures, I think, where um, this couple have this woman to have their child, bear their child. Pausing again, number uh, 21, uh, Philip K. Dick, Do Androids Dream of Electricity? Electric Sheep. And again, I didn't think this was a novel. I thought this was rather a short story. I thought, in fact, that was one short story in a book of short stories. But um, that uh, was the one that uh, led to the um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, I believe. The um... No, 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 that's, can we... No, 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 yeah, sorry, it's not, yeah. It's Blade Runner. Uh, the other one I was thinking of was... Um, we can dream it for for you wholesale, which is the the Arnold Schwarzenegger one. But you're quite right. This is the um, this is the Blade Runner one, isn't it? Do you want to make any more comments while you're on air, Mike? On yeah, not this really. One? It's, just, uh, it's been a long time since I've read the book, so I I don't really yeah. remember remember that many specifics. But yeah, this is the one with the replicants in it, yeah. And indeed it says there in the blurb, uh, albeit loosely on the 1982 Ridley Scott film Blade Runner. Okay, we're scooting along. We're in the top 20 now. Frankenstein, uh, Mary uh, Shelley, of course. Uh, I don't think I even need to comment on that. I think that's horror. I don't know why it's in here, but obviously it's a very important book in terms of uh, uh, writing. Well, no, I mean so, it's, uh, it's science well, fiction. I mean, I don't, I don't agree okay. that it should be this, this high up. But it, I mean, considering when it was written and what was being right, proposed, okay. the, the, you know, the reanimation use of, of, use of electri electricity. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. But I think, I think from our perspective today, you know, it really doesn't look like uh, um, science fiction. And and we've been sold it as horror by Universal, and even young Frankenstein sells it as more horror than anything. But I think at the time, it's 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 basically, isn't it considered the first science fiction book, or something along those lines? Yeah, I think it probably is, actually, when I think back. Yeah. It's been mooted as that, yeah. yeah. But I don't think it should be anywhere, you know. They certainly cast the net wide and far in this list. They did. I mean, in a way, that's that's kind of good. Um, but you know, as we always do with all of these lists, uh, the the devil is in the detail of where it places on the list. And uh, you know, I, I guess I understand why it's so high. 
you know, because it is foundational and why they they would probably put this above Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea or other things of that sort of early science fictional period, just because it is so much earlier. But I mean, in terms of the actual writing, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I was I've never been enamored particularly of Frankenstein or Dracula, you know, or or even you know, I didn't really say anything back when we were doing Time Machine or or um, the other H or War of the Worlds. I don't particularly like those either in terms of their actual use of language and all that. Um, and I'm surprised that those are as high up on the list as they are. But, I mean, I understand from a historical standpoint it, they were heavy hitters back in the day. Uh, quite right. Okay, um, Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, number 19. Again, another sort of weighty tomb. I've read a lot of Vonnegut's, and yeah, that's one of my favorites by Vonnegut. You were going to say something there, Darth? I was just going to say what you're probably going to say. Yeah, it's it's a it's a a great it's it's an interesting combination of World War II uh, imagery and the storyline with this sci-fi tale of of these aliens from the planet Trafalmador, and uh, we have this question of what what time is how time proceeds. Uh, It's it's. It's a great read. It's one of my favorites by Vonnegut. Yeah, okay. I think what I've always really enjoyed about Vonnegut's writing is that um, he is essentially what would have happened if Mark Twain had written maybe a little bit later. Because Mark Twain starts to, you know, get into some science fictional areas with like the uh, uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. And even, you know, later writings, right before he died, where he starts to get, you know, dark and talk about the devil and, you know, that sort of fantasy as he gets into the last bit of his life. Um, But there's something about Vonnegut. He even looks like Mark Twain in a lot of ways. He's got the bushy hair and stuff. Um, But there is something about his writing style that is at once imaginative and keen observation of people, just like Mark Twain, but has this, you know, really nice arc of imagination and um, use of, I guess, science to tell fiction as opposed to science fiction. If that makes any sense in the world, you know, it's like, well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Carl Sagan in a lot of ways. It's kind of like um, David Niven, maybe even. You know, this this notion that it, it matters to get the science basically right, but it also, unlike David Niven, unlike a Frederick Pohl, it also matters to tell a good character-based story. And to me, Vonnegut is... Um, well, you know who Vonnegut really... Vonnegut and... and um, oh, hell. <laughs> who were we just talking about? Um, Dr. Neil Dwight. Gaiman? Yeah. Vonnegut and Neil, and Neil Gaiman are two peas in a pod in a lot of ways. Um, Vonnegut is, you know, 20 years... He's, you know, his main bulk of writing is 20 years before Neil Gaiman. But they are very similar in terms of the fact that 
character is important. The fact that you've got to get the incidents of humor, you've got to get the lines right, you've got to make the dialogue finely crafted, or else the broader story that you're trying to tell, the broader themes that you're trying to bring to your audience aren't worth a damn. Um, so, you know, you don't... I, the great thing about Vonnegut is that, yes, he is basically a science fiction writer, but somehow you don't think of him that way, or at least I don't think of him that way. I mean, I think of him as one of the great American novelists, because he really is, of the 20th century, one of the great American novelists. You know, he is 20th century's, again, answer to the 19th century Mark Twain. And it's, it's, it's just a... You know, I've always said that I, you know, I came to Doctor Who because I was looking for British comedy, not because I was looking for science fiction. And it's sort of the same thing with Vonnegut that I like, and, and Neil Gaiman, for that matter, is, you know, I'm not with them because of the genre in which they write. I tolerate the genre in which they write because what they're writing is so damn good. Right. Yeah, I like that. That's a, 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 I mean, the essence is what they're writing, really, isn't it? The, the, the other is just the framework, really. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Okay, let's move on, if we may, because uh, we're coming up to the two-hour mark. Uh, at number 18, that's where we're up to, Ian, uh, the King Killer Chronicles, uh, Patrick uh, Rothfuss, I think that is pronounced. Don't say much because number 17, we've got another Robert A. Heinlein book, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, which I thought, again, it's another thick tomb, uh, but I, I really like this. Um, and, of course, you'll, you'll often find that phrase used in, in, in many uh, other literary works. Um, and um, a little bit like the, um, the film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, although I think that's based on a different book. Um, the one that had the uh, the singer in it uh, played the the lead role, but um, yeah, Stranger in a Strange Land yeah. definitely worth it. definitely worth it. I mean, this is you know Heinlein, uh, and and again, I didn't really comment on um, oh, what the hell. I can't think of anything because I'm still so damn tired. Um, the uh, we've had uh, a few of his Starship Troopers. You know, yeah, Heinlein. Heinlein I think, to me, unlike other uh, quote-unquote hard science fiction writers, um, has has an ability to make interesting comment on real life. Um, and this is a great example of that. Another reason I really like Stranger in a Strange Land is because it's essentially... Um, it, it kind of literally is a literary version of... <laughs> the DC superhero Martian Manhunter. I mean, it's got a lot of uh, parallels there, and I think technically Martian Manhunter comes before this. Because Martian Manhunter, I think, is from the late '50s or whatever. But it's it's the the basic idea of you know somebody from Mars coming, you know, and living among us in a in a disguised way, and what observations that you can make. It's you know also the classic archetype for. I guess the spot well, character, the data character, whatever, having a having a character who is different from humans but living among humans so that you can make comments about humanity. Boom. Yeah. Uh, uh, the opposite and, one is, is Shogun, if you think of uh, 
the the book, mm. the story Shogun, mm. where mm. he's living mm. in the Chinas, the Japanese, yeah, ja- yeah Japanese, it, ja- yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, I, I mean, for me, although I really like the novel and I think it's it's um, fine science fiction, um, I kind of like Star Trek Troopers better, uh, just because there's more of a stylistic edge to to um, Starship Troopers because it's trying to make a point about jingoism, about militarism, about fascism, which, uh, incidentally, you made the point that you thought it was a little more toned down in the book. It's not, to my mind, in um, Starship Troopers, the book, it's not that it's more toned down. It's just maybe done in a different way. They were trying to find a way to to bring all that across in a visual medium, and so they, they came up with this conceit, which is sort of in the book, but you're right, the conceit itself is not as prominent in the book. The conceit of the, um, you know, um, advertisements, the, the manipulations. Yeah. I mean, the, the manipulation is in the book, but the yeah. idea of, the you know, having commercials every, you know, few stretches of time in, in the book... Um, I mean, in the in the um, movie, oh. that's not quite so prominent in the book, but the book has it. It's just you know, being a book, it does it in a, in a different way. Um, and I kind of like that book a little bit better, you know, than Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, but I think that's only because, you know, I, I'm not reading Stranger in a Strange Land in 1961. I think in 1961, it would have been, oh wow, this is a freaky, cool, you know. Um, reversal of uh, what you call it of um, War of the Worlds, you know, where there you got Martians who are coming down to dominate and control, and here it's more like, you know, it's subtler. It's 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 not really you know trying to take control. It's about influencing the development of humanity. It's about commenting upon it. You know, it's much more uh, psychological sort of drama than War of the Worlds was. Uh, but you know, we don't have the luxury of reading this. Without knowing about Spock, without knowing about Data, without knowing about the Doctor, even you know, um, but it's it's pretty damn good as uh, these things go, and I'm happy for it to be in the top twenty, I suppose. Yeah, I think time enough for love. I prefer to it, but uh, I think we'd have to move on fairly sharply now, if we may. Uh, number sixteen, I Robot, Isaac uh, Asimov. Uh, of course, the laws of robotics. Uh, of course, there's a lot of short stories that related to uh, th- that. Uh, we could actually spend quite a lot of time on uh, the use of uh, robots and how they're being portrayed in books, and uh, a lot of them stemming from, uh, you know, his three laws of robotics. Uh, I remember first encountering Asimov of, uh, from uh, the uh, the monthly magazine, the. Uh, science fiction and fantasy magazine um, uh, he and Theodore Sturgeon and lots of other different ones James Blish used to write really those were brilliant uh, monthly uh, comics think, think of like think of like a monthly Reader's Digest coming to you but all, all the contents with uh, scientific are in actual fact um, uh, there was also um, a mathematical and science section I think Asimov did that as well but um Really a great book. Fifteen, Watchmen. 
Uh, I think my brother was a really keen... Oh, no, no, it wasn't the Lensman series my brother used to read about. But this is The Watchman by Alan Moore and David Gibbons. Uh, I think it's an odd, odd thing to well, have in this list is a graphic novel. Mm. It seems extremely out of place to, to, to put that in there, and so high. I, well, I, I mean, again, really, that's because it, it was on New York Times bestseller list, which is yeah. unusual for a graphic novel, but it, it, it seems, largely is considered a, a novel more than a graphic novel. It just seems an odd kind of a... An, an, an anomaly, really, in, in here, you know. You know, all of these, you know, all these books, and, and then all of a sudden the graphic novel pops in for number 15. It's just kind of strange. Well, Sandman's here, too, and Sandman's graphic novel. Oh, true. Yeah, true. I was otherwise uh, occupied when that was mentioned. <laughs> okay. Uh, number 14, uh, New Romancer, William Gibson. Now, this, t- to me, I, I consider him a fairly new writer. I was, uh, well... It's a long time ago now when I think about it, probably 20 years. I uh, I went to Manchester University on a uh, what they call a, what they call it, uh, you know, an out of uh, the main curriculum. It was just like a, uh, a social studies group for science fiction and book. We used to meet every couple of weeks and uh, we were given a book to read. And uh, I got introduced to to uh, this writer William Gibson, and actually. Probably, if I'd have read him, uh, well, he wasn't writing earlier, but this is a new kind of science fiction that I really like, and uh, Count Zero and uh, Neuromancer, I I thought were really good books. I don't know if anyone wants to comment on them, but definitely uh, that deserves to be in certainly the top quarter of this uh, list, I would have thought. 13, Animal Farm. Probably a lot of people maybe like uh, the Seventh Doctor said uh, perhaps it was one of the books that uh, you had to read when you were at school or college or whatever. Maybe some people's uh, version of you know things like this and Lord of the Flies and so on are slightly coloured because you you were made to read it. Uh, it's quite a while actually since Jeff has chimed in. Do you want to actually mention anything on any of these recent ones or Animal Farm, Jeff? Maybe I will take. May have put him to sleep. <laughs> right now we can skip over the next one, number twelve. Something yeah, called no, no, the Wheel I don't think anyone's of, ever heard of it. Wheel of Time series, Robert Jordan. Now, if only Mike was here. Indeed, if only. <laughs> You're on. Yes. What go can on, I say about on. the Wheel of Time? Well, Wheel of Time started. The first book was published back in 1990, and. Uh, the last book in the series is being published in January of next year. Fourteen books in all, plus a prequel. Uh, sad thing about this series is that the author, Robert Jordan, uh, passed away in late 2007. Uh, as Before he, he passed away, he was diagnosed with amyloidosis, and he was writing the last book while he was in the, the, Mayo, the Mayo Clinic Hospital in Minnesota. And he was he was writing the book, and he, he had every intention of finishing the book, and he kept saying that... Uh, when the book, when the, the final book, A Memory of Light, is re- is released, it'll be at least two thousand pages, and every copy of the book will come will come with a will come with a cart that you can carry it around in. <laughs> but yeah, the, the Will of Time. It's a, it's, well, of course I love the series. It's 
it's it's a fantasy series. It's the, the way Robert Jordan wrote. You have this really intricately detailed world where you have all these all these nations on this continent, and you, you get really vivid descriptions of all the societies in that world. You start off in this farming village of uh, the the two rivers, Emmonsfield, and you meet these these three young men, Randall Thor, Matram Cawthon, and Perrine Barra, and um, they're Hey, that's that's interesting. That's your name. Yes. Imagine <laughs> wow. that. Now you know where I got the name from. <laughs> I thought that's where he got the name from. <laughs> just be careful of spoilers because Willis Girls just started reading uh the series. Oh yeah, I saw I saw a comment and uh, I'm cool. not going to what I what I'm talking about uh I'll uh, you, you could you hit what I'm saying is just basically like the first half of the book, not that's first book. Sure that that. But you have these, yeah, I saw our comment, so no spoilers. But you get this, these three country boys, these farm boys that live in a small village, and then suddenly one day this uh, this rather finely dressed uh, lady comes into town. Everyone thinks she's a noble, and she's she's accompanied by by a, a personal guard who's always sneaking around. And uh, a few days after. They arrive there. The, the, the village is going to have one of their annual uh, festivals, uh, Sunday, and uh, they're, uh, which is the name of their festival, not the day of the week. But they're they're going to have one of their annual festivals. But then all of a sudden, all of these shadow spawn creatures attack the village one night. These creatures called Merdral, These sh- these creatures in, that look like look like shadows and have no face, and these. Uh, Hybrids of beasts and men called Trollocs. They invade the village, and apparently they're searching for a certain man. In ages, in previous age, uh, there was this, there was this great war where uh, you have this this character known as Luz Theron Telamon, nicknamed the Dragon, and he was one of the more powerful men in that age. There's this system of magic in the books called uh, the One Power. Divided it into two halves. You have Seiden, which men can draw from, Seidar, which women can draw from. But in that war uh, against the dark, the dark one, uh, the dragon was going to seal away the, the dark one outside of time. But in doing so, he channeled from Seiden, and the dark one, as sort of a counterattack, poisoned Seiden. So that from that moment on, any men who could channel Seiden, Seiden, uh, eventually go mad from from the, the taint on Seiden. And uh, usually they they go crazy and use their power to destroy the world around them, kill everyone that they've ever loved or who's ever related to them, and that led at that at that moment that led to what was known as the breaking of the world, where the entire world was shifted, the continents were unmade and moved around, and destruction all around. And since then, in the ages since, men who can who can channel are hated and feared, to the extent that they're chased down and killed if they're ever found. The only problem with that is that. The, there, there are prophecies in that world saying that one man, uh, the dragon, will be reborn, and he's a man who can channel, and he's the only one who can defeat the Dark One. So the the kind of person that everyone hates and fears is the person who can save them. And the the prophecies say that the man who can save them will also destroy the world. So that you have that thing going on. But beyond that, you just Jordan's d- description of societies. You have all of these cultures, and. and Going back and forth, some are at war with, with with each other, some are wanting to go at war with each other. You have all of this political intrigue going on, and it's just a very detailed world. You have all of these societies that you have. You have this group of. Of course, I mentioned that men can are no longer allowed to channel. Basically, women are safe. They they can channel their half of the one power safely, so they're respected and the, they they have their own order called the Aes Sedai, and they're they're a very powerful political order. 
throughout the world. And uh, But yeah, The Wheel of Time, it's been going on for 13 books. It's got one book left. I mentioned that Brendan Sanderson passed away in 2007, uh, and that Robert Jordan was writing the final book. He was making a lot of progress. Uh, the, at the time of his, just before he passed away, he he made a lot of notes. He recorded a lot of audio tapes and left all of those to his wife, Harriet. And soon after Jordan passed away, Harriet chose another uh, uh, another fantasy author, the up-and-coming uh, Brendan Sanderson, who we've already mentioned. He wrote the Mistborn series, among other things. He wrote The Way of Kings, also on this list. Uh, Brendan Sanderson has been given all of the notes, and what was to be one 2,000-plus page book is now being done as three books, the first two of which are out, and the last one comes out in January. So if you love the fantasy series, Wheel of Time is definitely one you should check out. I love the series, if it's not obvious. <laughs> okay. Well, forgive us if we move on, uh, Mike, because we, we must really try and finish in the next 10, 15 books, minutes at the most. 11 books, and I'm looking over what they are, and yeah, <laughs> onwards. Okay, let me take us up to number 11, The, the Princess Bride, uh, by William Goldman. More of a fantasy one. And near, another, at number 10, Neil Gaiman, yet again, American Gods. Pausing okay, each time. Just, just a really quick note to answer what Bill Scroll is asking in chat, and uh, about whether the Sanderson-Jordan final three books are any good. Uh, they are... I was unsure going into them, but I, after reading the first two that he's written, Cross, uh, the, the Gathering Storm and Towers of Midnight, I'm assured that he's he he he's not he he's doing his own style, more towards what Jordan wrote, but he's doing a good job. The, the last few books need a fast pace, and he's writing at a fa- at, at a fast pace. He he's good. He's a good choice. Thank you, and thanks for the question, Willis Girl. Uh, number nine, uh, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. Again, that might have connotations of some of these books that people may have read it, but may have read it because they were set agendas uh, at school or college, and uh, sometimes that does put a uh, you know a slight dint on people's memories of a book because it's one that they were instructed to read rather than chose. Several of the and books here some, in the top ten are are those kinds of books. Yeah, and as the Seventh Doctor has just come back into text, I was just referring Jeff to one a couple of the other books before where. Uh, you know the fact that people might have the the other one I was referring to was Animal Farm at number thirteen. This one again at number nine. And you'd made a comment earlier on about uh, you know having to read well not having to but, but you were set a book to read. And I'm wondering whether some of these books are in there because they're they're sort of uh, in the common psyche of people because we all had to go through reading them. I remember in the UK it was always Lord of the Rings and Cider with Rosie were the books you had to read, and, uh, and 1984, and Slaughterhouse 5, and Fahrenheit 451. Uh, they were all sort of required reading. Jeff, do you want to come in at this moment, or do you want to just get back and listen while we get through these top ten? Well, you were just mentioning about requiring to read in school, and uh, some of these other ones I also had to read in, in school, um, we did read Watership Down, and I didn't care for that one at all. But uh, a couple of them further up the list, like Animal Farm, and uh, we haven't gotten to 1984 yet. I actually did enjoy those, even though I was required to read them in school. So I, I don't know if that really colored my my objectivity 
having to read them uh, for a class assignment um, because I did enjoy uh, some of the other ones. Okay. Again, it seems a pity that we're, we're, we're perhaps... Well, we didn't rush. We didn't certainly rush through the Wheel of Time one, did we? At number eight, uh, the Foundation Trilogy, uh, uh, Isaac Asimov. Um, it's Foundation, Foundation and Empire. And is it Empire, the last one? I can't remember. Um but I actually remember enjoying and reading those. But they're ones that you've actually got to, um, you know, I'm not saying you're going to work at them, but uh, they certainly might seem a little bit drier to younger readers now. But uh, they're no doubt, you know, pivotal works in science fiction. Number seven, uh, Fahrenheit uh, 451. Uh, of course, uh, that's the temperature of which paper burns, and that's to do with the uh, books being destroyed. So uh, a lot of... Um, Books, of course, in science fiction have been written about dystopian futures are, are are taking something that's happened in today's world and taking it to a possibly absurd but possible logical conclusion of how that might impact on society and change it. Uh, you think of Logan's Run about, you know, uh, euthanasia might lead to something like Logan's Run, where if you're over 25, you know, uh, you're considered uh, expendable and so on. Number six, we're getting some really high-rated ones here in terms of, you know, uh, perhaps obvious ones that would be near the top of this list. 1984 by George Orwell. Recently been in the news because the uh, the Apple advert that was uh, used, that used the 1984 themes, probably became more famous as their advertising than than, than the actual product they were advertising. So... Uh, Totalization State, uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of uh, the the main character played by John Hurt in the movie. Oh, it's a movie, Ian. Have you seen this one? No. As was Fahrenheit 451. But, uh, no? but, but I've, I've heard uh, the Goon Show's uh, take on it. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, 19, 1984 <laughs> is one of those books that sort of cycles in and out of popularity, depending on what's going on in the, in the political Scene. And nowadays, 1984 is more relevant than perhaps it ever has been, considering what's going on. So it's one of those cyclical books in popularity. And for five points, it deserves to be in the top ten. For five points on the trivia quiz, do you know when it was written? What when 1984 was written? Yep. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Now was it 1948? It's a trick question, yeah. They, he reversed the numerals. It was written oh, in 1948, okay. so he called it 1984. Yeah, yeah. It just, exactly it, just, it just reversed the numerals. Uh, number five, uh, A Song oh, one of more. Ice and Fire. Go on. One more Go thing on, about uh, 1984. Uh, there was a Twilight Zone episode called The Obsolete Man that reminds me a lot of this book. Uh, the Twilight Zone episode was about a librarian who was considered obsolete by the state, and they were going to kill him for that. Uh, it just gives me a lot of um, similarities between the two. I don't know if anyone's seen that Twilight Zone episode, but it's excellent. Okay. And uh, uh, just remember, those people uh, like Guest 14, Cybob, uh, Willis Girl, if you put, keep things in text, as, as Willis Girl has been doing, we will read them out. Uh, at number four, 
the June Chronicles. Well, well you skipped over one, Frank, Dave. Oh, no, I mentioned the Song of Fire and Ice. Oh, well, I, I was think, interrupted, so I'll mention yeah. it again. A Song of Ice and Fire series, George R. R. Martin. Is there a comment you want to make on that? Yeah, the reason that this is that, that series is probably the top five, looking, glancing up this list was posted on August of last year, is that this is the basis of the, the, the HBO series Game of Thrones. Is it indeed? What, yep, it is. That's what the, there are, I'm seeing the, the thumbnail shows four books, but yeah, the Song of Ice and Fire is the basis of the Game of Thrones on that that series. Oh, uh, just on a, a point here in the, in the UK, I was at the supermarket uh, a couple of days ago, and the Game of Thrones series has just come out on DVD. I don't know how long it's been out in the states, but it's only just come out here in the UK. And that's one of Darth's favourite series, I think. He wants to comment on that while he's fallen asleep. Uh, difficult time for him this early start. I'm sorry, I, I missed the subject of the sentence. What are you talking about? Uh, the the number five, the Song of uh, Ice and Fire series, uh, might just mention that that is the book series that Game of Thrones is based on. Right. And I just wondered if you wanted to comment, because I know you like the Game of Thrones. I've never read the book, so I don't. I don't, I don't okay. think it's fair to comment just on the medium that is secondary to the original. Okay, that's fine. We we need to press on anyway. At number four, the June Chronicles uh, by Frank Herbert, uh, and of course this is following the adventures of Paul Atreides, the son of a betrayed Drew, give, given up for dead on the treacherous Dennis planet. The planet, of course, is June. Uh, in fact, there's a whole series of June books. My brother-in-law's got about 14 of them. There are tons of them. And they're books that are prequels, sequels, explanations of things that were mentioned in other books. Um, and this looks as though it's the 40th anniversary edition. There was the Children of June TV miniseries. There's been the film June. Um, absolutely, uh, all I'd advise, uh, if you do get into it, Start at the first book, June, um, and probably you can end when you get to God Emperor in June. I think it gets a little bit long-winded after that, and you get a little bit of recycling of the stories. But uh, some of the uh, the, visual, the visualizations in the book are marvellous. The, the worms that are in the desert uh, and the, the idea of the spice that is the thing that is the uh, that, that people want, this spice that gives longevity. And takers of the spice, it shows in their eyes, their eyes turn blue. And also it it, it um, takes our hero, uh, Paul Atreides, uh, to become a, a sort of messiah-type person. Number three? Yeah, I've never, I've never understood oh. Dune. I mean, I've never understood the popularity of it. I think it's horribly overwritten, uh, even in its original book. You know, I, I, it's never made any sense to me why people... Like it, I, I, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's ridiculous that it's this high on the list. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I can see it being in the top ten, but I think it's, it is a little bit too high. Oh, uh, I don't I even think, think it should I be think, top ten. I mean, I think this is much more bottom ten to me. Okay, okay, uh, but I would say the first four, after the first four books, you feel as though the bloke's just trying to make money. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it just was never engaging. It was never 
to me, it was never a realistic dialogue. And again, that's something that I, I continue to harp on as being fundamental to the core of a great novel. Is that you, it's got to be believable. And while there's world building here, and you know, I give you points for that, I suppose um, that's not the be-all, end-all to a book. Right. I mean, there is a lot in it, but definitely, certainly it's worth reading the first book, I would still say, uh, but you, sure. you have to be a real fan to uh, to push through to the end, and, and I know my brother-in-law has done that. Okay, number three, I'm pressing on, because I'm sure Ian's got pressure of time now. Uh, number three, Ender's Game, Orson Scott Card. I haven't really familiar with that, but I do know it has a huge fan following, and obviously that's why it's quite high up in list and high up in one or two other lists that uh, that we were going to take a look at, but sadly I don't think we'll have time to yeah, now. Ender's Game was a book that I had to read back in my senior year uh, literature class in high school, and I completely enjoyed the book. It was a great read. It's a uh, the, the basic story is that you've, you've got this kid named Andrew Ender Wigan Ender is his, is his nickname, and he's he's at this military school, and he's is the whole the whole thing is that Earth is at war with these alien species, and it's it's that word that several weeks ago <laughs> you got on to me for using buggers is what they're called. That's what <laughs> that's what the aliens are called. And you have this these children at this military school, and they're being trained to go to war with with these creatures, and that's that's the, the first book in the series is is really good. That leads into that book leads into a whole series of other books. You have the main series, which is uh, you know. Ender's Games, Xenocide, Speaker for the Dead, and Children of the Mind. And then Orson Scott Card went to write, went on to write a whole series of side books where we ha where there's this other character that we met, Nick, a character nicknamed Bean, who's sort of Ender's shadow. He's this character who's almost as good as Ender, but uh, not quite. And this series, uh, like Shadow of the Hegemon, Shadow Puppet, so on and so forth, it follows Bean's adventures, which is sort of like a the rest of the story as to what happened. So Ender's Game itself is a good book, and it leads into a great series. Thank you. Uh, number two, there's uh, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, almost so familiar, I don't think I need to explain the uh, the premise of that. Obviously, uh, we did a, an episode a while back about uh, humour in sci-fi and sci-fi and humour, and this is as much known for its humorous take on, on life, the universe, and everything, uh, that um, probably people have got their own opinions on that. They don't need to listen to us comment. We heard uh, Tim talk about it briefly before. Uh, if anybody's a, a real advocate for it and want to mention something, we certainly can do, but I'll pause for just a moment and then go to number one, uh, The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, of course, the three-volume epic uh, that's so successfully made into the film series, which um, absolutely uh, seemed to me to... Uh, I mean, it, it was often thought that this was a, a book that was un, couldn't be made into a film, uh, and I think uh, a lot of people are very satisfied with the, the films that were produced, and um, again, uh, I talked about Anthony Burge before. Uh, he does have some uh, complaints about the films, mainly um, to do with the, um, the 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 sidekick, not sidekick, is that the right word? Um, the Sam character, uh, who he felt as though he wasn't brought to the fore, and that it was his um, his role in it was slightly underplayed in the film. 
but I think for many people, totally satisfactory film well, series. Well, there's a the whole other argument that goes along with the, the, mo- with the way the movies were made as opposed to the book. There's the it comes down to what Tolkien Tolkien's messages, his intended messages in the books, and how it's completely interpreted differently in the movies. For starters, the movie version of Frodo is a lot younger than the version of Frodo from the books. He's a lot older in the series. There's there's a there's a a lot a lot more time passes between Bilbo's birthday party, his lovely first birthday party, and uh, when Frodo sets out on his journey in the books. There's so he's older in the in the in the book, so there's that different take on the character there. And there's just the different interpretation of different characters like the elves and such. But that's that. That that goes into a whole different rant. Right, yeah. Uh, but I mean, I'm sure there's an awful lot of people who know Lord of the Rings, but probably haven't read it. I haven't read it, I must admit. It's interesting, it's a trilogy of books, but Tolkien never meant for them to be three books. He meant them to be just one single volume, but publishers saw it differently. Okay, uh, and that nearly concludes our thing. I just want to very mention very briefly, because um, it was mentioned last time by... Uh, Jeff, and I've got another one as well. Two of the lists, and I'm not going to go to 100. Don't worry, Ian. Uh, one list is um, <laughs> top-sciencefictionnovels.com, top and I'm just going to read their top ten, uh, just to give you an idea of how it compares to this. And I'm going to read down from... Well, no, I'll read up from ten to one. Their top ten is Starship Troopers 10, iRobot 9, 2001 Space Odyssey, Odyssey 8, Fahrenheit 4517, Stranger in a Strange Land 6, 1984 at 5, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at number 4, The Foundation Trilogy at number 3, June at number 2, Ender's Game number 1, and I've got one more to read, sorry, in, um, but this is from um, Sci-Fi Lists, and I'll put the link in for those people in the room, um, because these are totally lists of sci-fi, not sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, sci-fi um, ilists.sfsjazz. And their top ten are uh, Starship Troopers at nine, iRobot at eight, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey at seven, Fahrenheit 451, six, Strangers in a Strange Land at five, 1984, at 4, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, 3, Foundation, at 2, June, uh, Ender's Game. So just to show you that this seems to be quite a lot of uh, agreement in some of these lists. Uh, the only disagreement with some of the lists, of course, is uh, what is conveyed to be science fiction and whether they should be in a separate fantasy list. So uh, at just over two and a half hours, hopefully long enough for Kathy to have painted yet another room. Um, I'm going to hand back to Ian, and when he's ready, I will play the outro. Right. Uh, yeah, Kathy, if you if you go back to the beginning again, you can probably get another room done. Uh, <laughs> uh, you may have noticed that we got a bit quiet towards the end, uh, and I don't think it's just that we didn't have anything to say. It's because this ended up being a bit longer a show than we were planning on. We got interrupted last week, uh, partway through the show, which ended up kind of putting us on the, the back foot for this one and, and uh, turning it into a slightly longer show. Plus, we had Tim uh, expanding on um, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide, so I, I think we, we kind of covered that with Tim's comments. Um, yeah, now, the interesting thing is... Um, 
and we'll we'll go around the room in a minute for for last comments is, is to kind of keep this list in mind of uh, I think from from what we were discussing last week is uh, a lot of the books in here are, are are in here because they were popular for a certain reason. Uh, either they're the first thing that you end up reading. Uh, some are in there because of their place in history as far as uh, science fiction and fantasy books. Uh, some are in here basically because they were uh, you know based on a uh, because they made a movie out of it. Uh, I I'm a little list because it lists. Uh, you know, group grouping books rather than a a, a single book. Uh, whereas <laughs> other things uh, like Terry Pratchett, they've got like two or three of his books listed in here singly. Um, it seems an odd kind of a list, but again, it's uh, they were nominated by people uh, and they were voted on by people. So in a way, it, it's kind of a neat list because it's it's. Uh, uh, regular people, just, yeah, representative of, of 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 you know readers of books, not necessarily uh, a hardcore science fiction uh, fan listing of top ten books. And we'll be getting to that after I go around the room for final comments. All right, uh, Darth, any 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 final comments on on the list itself, or or anything you think that we uh, skimmed over? Uh, not really. I mean, it's a good list. It's um, it, it brings a lot of interesting books to the fore. It's a fine list to, to start to use if you don't um, have a lot of uh, experience with science fiction and fantasy. It gives you a roadmap. I, you know, as with all the lists, I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with a particular order, but um, and I think it's missing a few things here and there. But it's still a pretty solid list of. Where you might want to uh, begin your encounter with literary science fiction and fantasy. Excellent, Mike. Any last thoughts? On the list? One quick thing to add is that this doesn't have anything to do with why it's so high in the list, but there is a movie adaptation planned for book one of The Wheel of Time, The Eye of the World, which uh, I think is a horrible idea because you can't translate those to movies because there's so much plot. You listen back to what I was said, to what I was saying, and there was a lot going on. That's only the tip of the iceberg. So there is a movie adaptation of the first book of Will of Time. I think it's a bad idea, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, this list overall, I... It was a good list. It had some had some good representations from throughout sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, as we were kept mentioning, I had a lot of books that are required reading in school, and uh, I liked a lot of those. There were some of those that I found dry reading, but uh, all all around good list. Alrighty, thank you. Seventh Doctor. Any last comments? Yes. Uh, overall, I thought the. <laughs> Yeah, here I am. <laughs> I, I forgot to unmute myself. Um, yeah, overall, overall, it was a pretty good list. Um, I, I think there's one glaring admission from the, the list, and that's the Narnia books. I, I don't know how you can have a list like this and not include at least one of those books or the series itself. Uh, as just uh, too classic and well-known not to be on there. Um, but... Again, I think that's a, a pretty good list there. Uh, as far as the Wheel of Time, doing a movie for the first book, maybe they could split it up into two and get more of the uh, plot threads in there. Just an idea. 
They could, they could. But still, even then, there's a lot going on. Oh, that's very true. Um, but but maybe they could get more of the feel of the book in there that way. Yeah. Who knows? Sanderson, Brendan Sanderson is keeping tabs on the on the, the script writers, so that's a plus. Yeah. Right, Dave. Any 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 last comments or anything from the text chat? Well, the, um, uh, well, Willis has put a wrinkle in time should have been in the list, so that, thank you for that. Uh, I, I'm, I, there's quite a few I can mention, but I'm just going to mention two. So I'm very aware we're, we're we're pressed for time. Two books I definitely recommend. One is Cosm by Gregory Benford, a brilliant book, and uh, another book co-written Arthur C. Clarke and Stephen Baxter, The Light of Other Days. Two brilliant books in my mind. I can name more, but I'll leave it at that. Um, And something I thought, well, actually, it's something I would like to have seen on the list, but... I have no idea whether it should be or is uh, uh, Terry Brooks' uh, Kingdom for Sale sold series, just because I like it. But on that comment, join us next week when we will be talking about my five sci-fi or fantasy picks. Now, what we're hoping you can do is bring along a science fiction fantasy novel, graphic novel, uh, radio series, TV series... Pick five of your favorite things, science fiction or fantasy, somewhere in between, and bring them along. We'll go around the room. People can talk about the same things that they enjoy within the realms of, of cultdom. Um, just thought it's, it's a chance for people to begin uh, some things to, to people off to, to, to you know, get yourself get yourself into, into something you haven't necessarily read or watched before and to get somebody else's uh, uh, opinion on something. So, uh, yeah, be prepared for that one. This, this was kind of a, a a nice way to you know ease us into that topic. Um, plus, we hadn't done books in a long, long time, so hence uh, tackling a, a list of this magnitude. Dave? Yeah, uh, and next week, of course, if you want to stay more on films and TVs, TV rather than if you feel as though we've done books to death and you want to bring things in that way, certainly can do. Basically, you know, it's your your contribution to what you've heard, and it's probably got you thinking. Hopefully, these last two weeks. Yep. So, yeah, anything you like, you can mix it up. You can have a TV show and, and a book and a movie, and or or it can all be all be, all be literature, whichever you prefer. All right, I shall bring this to a close. <laughs> um, unless you've got some more work to do. Uh, and, <laughs> anyway. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, again, I apologize for the length of this show. Uh, we should have uh, show should have been a little more equally split, but uh, due to audio issues last week, that didn't happen. All right. So, without any further ado, it's goodbye from Mr. Dave AC. And it's goodbye from Ian, the Sixth Doctor. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.